When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I don't pretend to be the biggest basketball fan in the world. Casual fan. If the game's on in a bar somewhere, I'll I'll uh, I'll turn I'll, I'll I'll look up. That's basically it. I don't think I could name more than 10 NBA players, and that's fine. I mean, I have so many activities to pass the time. But I have to tell you, there is a story involving the NBA that I found a little bizarre, okay? And that has to do with the situation involving the owner of the Phoenix Suns, Robert Sarver. Have you followed this story at all? So uh, Robert Sarver not only owns the Phoenix Suns in the NBA, he's a real estate developer. He also owns the WNBA team, that's the Female Professional Basketball League, the Phoenix Mercury. Get it, the Suns, Mercury, it's clever. Okay. So the NBA has suspended Robert Sarver for one year, one year, and fined him $10 million, $10 million, that's real money, even with inflation, following an investigation into allegations of workplace misconduct. Now, I see that headline, and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what did he do? He must have done something really bad. Was he spitting on people? Was he shoving people? Was he assaulting people? Was he, uh, you know, um, assaulting, um, you know, sexually harassing people? Well, according to the probe, Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, repeated the N-word when recounting the statements of others. You hear what I just said? He repeated the N-word when recounting the statements of others. He didn't call anyone the N-word. Additionally, uh, he did make sex-related comments at work and interacted inappropriately with employees, both men and women. I have to tell you, this is the biggest joke in the world. Um, The findings of this league report, see, this is what happens when they bring in an outside law firm to do an investigation. The outside law firm needs to get a scalp. They need to do something to justify their uh, billable hours here. Um, So he repeated or purported to repeat the N-word on at least five occasions spanning his tenure with the Suns. That goes back 20 years. And... 
the uh, this is the operative part of the report. The investigation makes no finding that Sarver used this racially insensitive language with intent to demean or denigrate. The study also concluded that Sarver used demeaning language towards female employees, including telling a pregnant employee that she would not be able to do her job after becoming a mother, made off-color comments and jokes about sex and anatomy, and yelled and cursed at employees in ways that would be considered bullying under workplace standards. The $10 million fine is the maximum allowable fine by the NBA. So now that he is suspended for a year from these teams that he owns, he cannot be present at any NBA or WNBA team facility. He can't even go to a game. If he wants to try and go to a basketball game, just buy a ticket, go see the Knicks when he's in New York, he's going to have to get one of those disguises, a fake Groucho Marx mustache and those glasses and a fake nose to hide and, and get a fake ID like a 20-year-old trying to buy beer. The, he can't go to any facility. Can't go to any office, can't go to any arena, including the ones he owns. Um, can't attend or participate in any NBA or WNBA event or activity, game, practice, or whatever. And the league said it would donate the $10 million to organizations that are committed to address, addressing race and gender-based issues in and outside the workplace. Uh, th- this is... Ridiculous. Now, I don't want to sound like I'm excusing using the N-word, but there is a huge difference between repeating the N-word if you're quoting somebody and calling someone the N-word. This is crazy. Uh, There is a whole lot of evidence that the NBA doesn't care much about human rights violations elsewhere in the world, places like Hong Kong, places like China, uh, including people that have the audacity to stand up for the Hong Kong protesters and speak out by the, for, uh, against the Chinese government. The NBA races to silence those people for sake of money. And yet, the NBA uses forced labor from China's Uyghur Muslim minority for league-branded merchandise. And this is what they're fining someone $10 million for. I'm sorry. But if this is the worst that he's done over the course of 20 years... Now, I don't think it's appropriate to bully someone in the workplace. I don't think it's appropriate to make untoward comments uh, to a pregnant woman... But is it worth getting suspended for a year from all NBA facilities, and including the team you own, and being fined? I don't think so. You know, there was a whole notion. Do you remember the 2016 presidential campaign when uh, Donald Trump got uh, caught on video using bawdy language with uh, George W. Bush's nephew? And what did he say? He said, this is locker room talk. Now... This is the the reason they call it locker room talk is because sometimes people do speak in a manner that's a little less than chivalrous inside a locker room. This guy is in and around athletes. He's been in and around these locker rooms for 20 years. And 
he quoted some people using the N-word, made some jokes that people found inappropriate, and in an industry where the pressure and the desire to win is extravagant and extraordinary, he was, quote-unquote, guilty of workplace bullying? This is total nonsense, in my view. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I think this is bizarre. I think this is absolutely absurd. Now, you know me. I don't have a problem with hypocrisy, but this, this is hypocrisy like crazy on the part of the NBA because the NBA, all of a sudden, they're a champion of the oppressed. The NBA is a champion of uh, people that are having a rough time, be it minorities, women, or whomever. And yet they say nothing while um, Chinese children are being paid 10 cents an hour to work on NBA merchandise. Now, this is not the biggest issue in the world. You know, I'm sure this guy, this guy's very wealthy. I'm sure he's going to be just fine. But... I think it it really says a lot about where we are as a society these days. And I think that um, I think this is bizarre, to be honest. 800-848-9222. If you want to uh, if you want to comment, that's uh, 800-848-9222. Let me tell you what is coming up. We have a monstrous show for you. We have actually four guests today. I don't remember the last time we had four guests. So so that that's the thing with this show. You never know what to expect. Some days we have zero guests. Some days we have one. And then other days we have four. So we have uh, Dana Michelle coming on. She's the founder of something called the Homecoming Challenge, which is pretty interesting, encouraging people to give a little something back to their alma mater. We'll talk to her. And uh, also she is an expert on something called Black Twitter, where there are all these people that are essentially, uh, especially in the minority community, celebrating the passing of 96-year-old Queen Elizabeth. So we're going to get into that. Uh, Bill Kozinski is here. He is a Marine Corps veteran, director of the Office of Military Affairs for the uh, University of North Carolina, Wilmington. What they've done is something that I hope a lot of other colleges and universities will uh, emulate. They are dedicating today a hall to all veterans, all veterans past, present, and future. And uh, I'm surprised that they're the first college in the whole country to do this, but I'm certainly glad about it. So he's going to join us. Seth Grossman is going to be here. Seth Grossman is a character, man. Seth Grossman is a character's character. Now, he has been sort of an activist in New Jersey he, for a long time. He's got this group called Liberty and Prosperity. And his group, which I think a lot of people kind of write off because Seth has such a tendency to be hyperbolic and go over the top, his group is the group that brought the uh, casinos to court and wanted them to pay more in taxes. And he's a conservative. But this is an area where I think the left and the right meet in order to get casinos to pay their fair share. So he's going to tell us about that. Brian Kilmeade is going to be here. Uh, Brian Kilmeade. I'm eager to talk to Brian Kilmeade about this uh, Lindsey Graham proposal. I didn't tell Brian I was going to ask him about this, but eager to talk to him about this Lindsey Graham proposal that uh, 
he wants he's just submitted this week to essentially have a national abortion ban. I have to tell you, I think as a uh, if I was a Democrat, seeing inflation, what it is, seeing the border situation, what it is, seeing crime going up. All of a sudden, Lindsey Graham is handing the Democrats a gift. That's how I see it. So I'll get into that with uh, Brian Kilmeade in our fourth hour. But I'm curious if you feel the same way about this uh, story involving Mr. Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury, as I do. Uh, In my view, it's just absurd. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. It's 800-848-9222. And uh, we're on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano, if you want to find us on Twitter. You can also email me. I might go through some of your emails a little bit later. My email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. To me, I was surprised at two things. One, that he got this fine. And two, that nobody said anything about it. I mean, for that goes to show you how widened the Overton window is for acceptable cancellation. I know we usually talk about the Overton window in other terms, meaning um, what's acceptable for people to do now. Well, we're seeing sort of two phenomena go on in the country today. We're seeing, all right, more and more things are allowable in politics and in other things and on television and the media that used to never be able to do. But we're also seeing a much lower threshold. Can you imagine just 20 or 30 years ago, an NBA owner being prohibited for a year from visiting his own arena, from visiting any arena, because he quoted someone using the N-word and made some jokes that were misogynistic? I mean, this is now something that gets you a $10 million fine? This is nuts. 800-848-9222. Charlie is in Chester, New Jersey. Hello, Charlie. Oh, thank you, Frank. I wanted to agree with your point about the NBA in China, but I also want to say I felt the United States shouldn't have even gone to the Olympics in China. I I thought they should have boycotted the whole thing. Well, I mean, look, uh, there's a point to be made uh, on that, but as far as I'm concerned, that's immaterial here, right? Uh, That has nothing to do with the NBA's decision to suspend and fine Robert Sarver. This is the second largest penalty in terms of so- total sanctions ever levied by the NBA against a team owner. The first, you might remember, was uh, when Donald Sterling was banned for life. Uh, Sterling was fined $2.5 million, which was the largest allowable figure at that time, and he was actually forced to sell the Los Angeles Clippers as part of that, uh, you remember that whole big thing, the massive fallout that followed him making racist comments in a recorded conversation with his, I don't think it was his girlfriend, but his his lady friend. I don't know what, I'm just trying to understand what the nature of their relationship was. But in my view, I think that was questionable, whether Sterling should have been forced to sell the team. But what Sterling did and was caught doing, even though those were private conversations, that's much worse than I think what Robert Sarver is doing. These allegations against Sarver were reported by ESPN last year, which said that they had talked to dozens of current and former team employees for their story, including some who detailed inappropriate behavior. So originally, Sarver denied it or disputed most of the allegations. But on Tuesday, 
Sarver's representative said the investigation's findings confirmed that there was no evidence whatsoever to support several of the accusations in the uh, ESPN story that was reported last year, is a quote from one of his people. While it's difficult to identify with precision what motivated Sarver's workplace behavior described in this report, certain patterns emerge from witness accounts. Sarver often acted aggressively. Excuse me. This is the report that was prepared by this outside law firm, not his representatives. I misspoke. He, this is the report that his, the law firm prepared. Sarver often acted aggressively in an apparent effort to provoke a reaction from his targets. Sarver's sense of humor was sophomoric and inappropriate for the workplace. Do you know how many people I deal with on a daily basis that have sophomoric and inappropriate humor? I mean, not that, um, not that it's right, but does it really prevent you from doing your job? Does it really make you uncomfortable to the point that someone needs to be fined $10 million? This is crazy. Sarver apparently behaved as though workplace norms and policies did not apply to him. Well, unfortunately, the owner of a basketball team or any business, a lot of times that's how they act. Does it make it right? No. Should you tell misogynistic jokes? No. Does that go on every day, not just in the world of sports, but in corporate boardrooms all over the country, all over the world? Yes. And to say we're going to ban someone for a year, it just smacks of injustice to me. And I think the silence, not only from the media on this, but from, to be honest, look, I see one guy, just Charlie and Chester, calling in to comment on this. The silence from you is deafening. Where is the outrage? I stand alone, apparently, on this. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Sarver continued denying the allegations as recently as June. Uh, and uh, now apparently now apparently he is accepting the league's penalty. I think he apologized. So uh, among the league's findings, they said that Sarver engaged in crude, sexual, and vulgar commentary. And uh, the investigation also found that Sarver sent a small number of male son's employees a joking pornographic, excuse me, joking pornographic material and crude emails, including emails containing photos of a nude woman. Oh, my goodness. I can't believe we're only suspending him for a year. Can't we get this guy the death penalty? He forwarded an email of a, with a nude woman to employees at a basketball team? My goodness. Oh, please. 800-848-9222. Hey, I'm really excited to talk with uh, Dana Michelle. She is a, a very, very impressive woman. She's a, a television talk show host, a radio talk show host. She's uh, an attorney. She is uh, a really a leader and a go-getter and somebody that... Uh, I've been following for some time now, and uh, she's doing this thing called the Homecoming Challenge, which I'm really interested in. They have a big event coming up this week here in New York, so we're going to talk to her about that. And you can check out her website, DanaBeingDana.com. And uh, this is a nationwide Homecoming Challenge, and basically is encouraging alumni to go back and give something back to their alma mater as part of this uh, surprise initiative. 
So uh, it's really interesting. We'll talk to we'll talk with her about it in just a moment. Um, a little bit later, we'll talk veterans. A little bit later, we'll talk taxes. We'll talk abortion. We got a lot of stuff. UFOs. We've got alien stuff. I don't know how we're going to squeeze it all into a four hour program, but we're going to uh, try. And apparently, believe it or not, for the last ninety minutes, it has been our telephone talent coordinator Kenneth's birthday. Um, if some of you don't check your email. You might not have gotten the press release that Kenneth sent out. This is a supplemental to the press release that he sent out about his haircut. Um, we're all very excited for him, and uh, we're really very sorry for him that uh, he's not able to have dairy today because of his situation. But uh, so when you call in at 800-848-9222, please be sure to um, wish Kenneth a happy birthday. And we all hope that he does not. Um, wish for a better job than the one he has now because he's doing a great job. Frank is in Philadelphia. Hello, Frank. Hey, Frank. How's it going, buddy? Not too bad. Yeah, this is crazy. I mean, this is ridiculous. Uh, I stand with you with this, and I, I don't know what to make of it, Frank. What's your take on this? I, thank you, Frank. You think I, I, should be banned for no, no. A look, year? no, I mean, no. I, look, I have no problem with giving him a fine. Make him, uh, you know, make him, uh, you know, go through a, a training course. Make him issue an apology to the employees that he offended. Uh, give him right. a, a stern slap on the wrist. Say, if you do this again, you may face a uh, a, a suspension. But to me. Um, the idea of finding of prohibiting someone from going into an arena for a team that they own is absurd. And the idea of prohibiting them from going into any NBA or WNBA arena if they buy a ticket because of this suspension. I mean, it's just absurd. It's such a it's a punishment that is so out of proportion with the offense, in my view. That's my now, issue here. Frank, can I ask you a question? Anything you want. Okay, he quoted somebody, correct? He didn't just come out there and say the N-word. Right, exactly. If he were to go up, um, you know, and say, you know, that uh, that N-word LeBron James is really horrible. We, we don't want his kind uh, in, uh, in Phoenix when, under my right. leadership. That would be a big deal. But if he's right. if he's watching the movie Blazing Saddles and or and somebody asks him, "Hey, what's your favorite line?" and he quotes the N word from Blazing Saddles, to me, that's a totally different situation. Well, on your take, why is it okay if you're black to say the N word and use it with an A, but nobody else can? You know, it's I, I know that's in their lyrics and you know, their songs, and and, yeah, and it's said, I, you know, daily, and you know, but if somebody Italian, such as myself, Sicilian, which I have black blood in me, if I were to use the word, they would crucify me. You know, I I, uh, I know that James Golden has spent a lot of time uh, looking at that uh, issue, and uh, he has very strong feelings. He doesn't think that that should be uh, the way it is. And I know there's a um, there's a, a professor, I think he's a Harvard professor, yeah, a Harvard Law School professor by the name of Randall Kennedy that has a book all on this subject, and, and he happens to be black, but he does interviews, and he uses the N-word like crazy. Now, uh, I'll tell you, Frank, I don't know why it's different, but it is. It is. So, uh, and I'm not going not gonna, to not gonna find out by throwing it around because, you know, honestly, the reality is because that word has such a history 
of being used to demean people, to take away their humanity, when a white person uses it, especially to call a black person that, that's pretty offensive, to say the least. But uh, I think there's a big difference in quoting someone and calling someone that word. I do. 800-848-9222. Dana Michelle is here. Maybe we'll run this by her as well. Uh, She happens to be uh, African-American. She may have opinions on the subject as well. We'll get into this and a whole bunch of other issues because uh, it is back-to-school time. So we are jumping headfirst into back-to-school mode. And we're going to uh, explore not only the Homecoming Challenge Tour, but what the University of North Carolina Wilmington is doing and what's going on in your neck of the woods. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Dana Michelle joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I guess I should have written that to let you know that I was coming home. I've been gone so many years, I didn't realize you had a phone. I saw your cattle coming in, boy, they're looking mighty fat and slim. I saw Fred at the service station, told me that his wife was awful sick. on the radio oh well it's just another song but I've got a hit recorded and it'll be out on the market for too long I got this ring in Mexico no didn't cost me quite a bunch when you're this song is called Homecoming by uh, Tom T. Hall right uh, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, just join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. And this song is apropos of our first guest, Dana Michelle. She is the founder of something called the Homecoming Challenge, which is really exciting. It's a nationwide homecoming challenge that encourages alumni to go back and give back to their alma mater as part of something called the Surprise Initiative. We're going to talk about it in just a minute. Dana, it is great to meet you. Thanks for coming in studio. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Now, what uh, what time zone are you used to being in? You're usually East Central, Coast. Chicago. Oh, Central. Chicago is here in the building. And, and we're thrilled to be here. Great. So it's an hour earlier for you than, than it is for me, usually. But, but it doesn't feel like that. No. <laughs> At all. Now, um, there's been a lot of attention paid this week to uh, the passing of Queen Elizabeth, longest serving monarch in British history, 96 years old. She's lying in state. There's American officials, world leaders from all over the globe heading to Great Britain for her funeral. Not everybody is exactly sad about her passing. There was one report of uh, somebody lambasting her because of colonialism, but apparently... This has now exported, has become something of a trend in the form of something called Black Twitter. That's right. What exactly is Black Twitter? Well, I'm not on Twitter, so let me just say Smart. that. That's why you're the smarter one of the two of us. Well, there's that. <laughs> but I, I received, you know, some text messages and some links to it. You know, people, which I understand, people have to keep in mind that 
the longest reigning um, monarch, Queen Elizabeth, was in 1953. She was only 25 mm-hmm. when she ascended to the to the throne. Right. So, uh, think about what our country looked like, the landscape of what that looked like in 1953. Oh, yeah. Think of our country and Great Britain. And, two and think about world. Think about your morals and your values and your your ability to stand up for even what you think is right mm-hmm. in when you were 25 years old. Oh, a different world. Just kind of like, whatever, you know, I just don't want to make waves, et cetera. Um, so I get, you know, part of her position and where she was at and all those kinds of things. So there's a lot of people on black Twitter, you know, who have had, who have been very vocal. Um, and what are they saying exactly? They're taking issue with her not being a proper champion of, of minority rights. Is that the gist of it? The, the essence really is that she represents colonialism. And so, you know, a lot of our a lot of countries around the world have been founded on European, UK, Britain, British colonialism. And so, um, you know, participating in that. Supporting that and or not supporting that, right? Because sometimes by by not speaking up, you become you know supportive of the oppressor, and so I think a lot of people um, have had strong reactions. Just they want to see a change in 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 the era. So the folks that are on Black Twitter, and I saw a couple of these videos, and essentially, usually it's. Uh, it's almost like a news-based rickrolling where you, you click on a video about Queen Elizabeth and it's people celebrating and singing and dancing. These folks are essentially happy that she's dead. What I, I think what it is, I mean, there's jokes and people are making light of the mm-hmm. fact. And, and, we, and we shouldn't make light of the fact that someone has died, right? And there's, a, I mean, she was a respectable woman to many people um, and represented a lot of good, you know, which was interesting to me just because... I've recently, and I'll tell you more about me a little bit later, but I've recently watched Bridgerton, right? Mm-hmm. I, see, I haven't seen it. How is it? Oh, Yo, uh, you should check it out. Really? It's gotten good reviews. Call me when you get to to, to uh, episode five, season <laughs> one. Got it. But, um, you know, it's just, and, and the reason why I say that is because it was produced by a black woman, Shonda Rhimes, who everybody knows from Grey's Anatomy um, and, and other shows that she has produced. So I think that... There's a bit of a backlash to the Queen's passing because there's been so much genocide, particularly in the African countries, uh, and there's been a lot of loss. There's been a lot of pain, a lot of bloodshed, and and and, th- and that blood is on the hands of uh, England, you know, in Europe and all those kinds of things. So it's just been interesting to see kind of how all of that has has come about. Um, Obviously, you know, my condolences, of course, to the royal family and all that kind of stuff, too. I, I get all of that. But I also can see where people uh, have had some resistance, some resistance to it. I think that a lot it's one reason why I think people celebrate Prince Harry, mm-hmm. because he represents kind of a new a new era, a new change. Because his child is biracial or multiracial. He's always been. uh Different. Mm-hmm. He's always been out there. He's always kind of uh, marched to the beat of his own drum. And I think that in marrying a woman who is American and who is biracial and then having a biracial biracial children, uh, you know, I, I think just kind of all of that. But you have to keep in mind that people made such a big deal about that. Right. You know, what is 
what is their first child, the son, you know, what, what does his skin look like? What is his color? Is he going to be dark? You know, there was a whole theory about all that kind of stuff. So do we, not just you and me, but all of society, do we pay too much attention to these royals who really have no power whatsoever? We pay too much attention to differences. Mm -hmm. And that's what my show and the homecoming challenge are are really all about and, and changing that narrative, focusing less on the differences and the things that bring people together. Got it. All right. Well, so uh, talk to me about the surprise initiative. What is the surprise initiative? And then how does that fit in with the homecoming challenge? Well, tell me this, Frank. Where did you go to college? New York University. NYU. Yeah. It's funny because I went to NYU for a year. Uh, I matriculated from Spelman, but they have a program called the Domestic Exchange Program. Mm -hmm. So my junior year, I actually spent... At NYU. Really? I which school did you Hayden go to? Hayden Hall. Oh. Washington see, I didn't Square live. West. I, ca- I commuted. <laughs> but, um, do you, which, which school at NYU did you go, did you go to? Do you remember? Uh, I was in, w- when I came, I just took political science classes, just okay. the regular. So probably uh, CAS, College yes, of Arts and College Sciences. College of Arts and Sciences. Okay. That's exactly right. I was like, I don't even remember. Like, it was just NYU. I was <laughs> yeah. just so excited to be at NYU. Um, and that's what I mean. See, as, as you and I, it's a perfect example of, as you and I get to talking, we realize that we have things in common. And that's what it's all about. Uh, the homecoming challenges, you go back to NYU, and it sounds like you were a commuter student, uh, but you can really approach any student at NYU. What I have found is that there is a missed moment between alums and students, current students. You go back to campus, you know, for whatever reason, chances are you're not really thinking about alums. Mm-hmm. I mean, excuse me, current students. You're not thinking about the current students that are there. You're there to handle whatever business you're handling. You're going in to, to pay something, to meet somebody, to talk to somebody, coffee, whatever it is. The homecoming challenge is about creating an organic mentoring moment, which is what we call it, of going back. So for those who stayed on campus, you go back to your freshman dorm. You knock on the door and you say, hey, my name is Dana. X number of years ago, which we won't, which, which we won't say right now. <laughs> I used to live in this room. I used to be in this dorm. And this is my advice to you for the next four years of surviving this institution, whatever it is. This is my advice to you in life. Here's my business card. I'm a lawyer. I'm a mom. I'm a single mom. Uh, I started a, a podcast. I started a nonprofit. I started, I have a TV show. And, and, and it's more about people in our, in our age group, in our, at our level, they don't realize how awesome they are because I think they're so busy in, in the day-to-day of being parents, mm. of being in your career, of supporting your parents as they're aging. So they don't really focus on themselves and how they have the ability to influence and change lives of the younger generation. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dana Michelle. You can learn more about her on her website, DanaBeingDana.com. Check out her TV show and her podcast. She is the founder of the Homecoming Challenge. I, I love um, what what you're doing here, and I'm a big believer at every level, uh, not just for college students, but really at every uh, professional level as well, in having mentors yep. and having protégés. I have uh, quite a few of both. I'm sure uh, you do. Both. I, I, I'd like to think. I learn a great deal from people. People that are much more accomplished than me in a variety of of factors. Explain now, given the constraints of time that you just described for yourself and the average ordinary person who might be listening to us right now, why is that so important to make this a priority to take time out of your day or your week or your month 
to then go to a college that you might not have been back to for 10, 15, 20, maybe more years and uh, try to offer a mentorship opportunity to some of the current students. Why is that so important? Because it's easy. Mm -hmm. Food insecurity, for example, is a thing. Food insecurity on college campuses before the pandemic one out of two students on college campuses suffered from food insecurity, which was defined as at some point during the semester, they would be without a meal, uh, the inability to afford a meal on campus. Um, a lot of you have heard of food pantries, um, kitchens, uh, where they would offer food to, to students uh, to, to get through the semester. When does that happen? Likely near the end of the semester. Mm. When, 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 Money has run out. Refund checks have gotten low. Uh, what is also happening at the end of the semester? Finals. How are these kids getting through finals when you know they're struggling to make ends meet? Uh, a lot of kids come, they're either first-generation college students or they've got families who've put everything into just getting them there. And there's a ton of programs, Frank, out there about getting kids to college, but there are very few programs about keeping kids in school. So when we when we talk about the homecoming challenge and you encouraging alumni to give back, we're not necessarily talking financially, make a, a contribution over to the school that you graduated from, giving back something in terms of time and in terms of uh, st- mentorship on a one-on-one basis to a student. Well, it's multifaceted. I think we the ask and the challenge is specifically about the student's either in your dorm room or you can find students. And a couple of people have challenged me on this. Well, either my dorm is no longer, it's an office building now, or I didn't, I was a commuter student. So what can I do? How can I participate? I guarantee you, you go to NYU, you have $20, a student will take it. The idea is to give them a little bit of cash because that's a great incentive incentive for these kids these days. Sure. Cash, you know, uh, cash is king. But so it's not just that, but it's the business card. You know, I started this with my co-founder, Chris Evans, in 2017, and we did it at Morehouse and Spelman College, our alma maters, in honor of a friend of ours who died in a tragic car accident uh, who was passionate about giving back. And we went back to our dorm rooms. The two girls who were in my room in 2017, one is just graduated from Vanderbilt with her master's in marketing. The other one is a medical student um, in South Carolina. And so... I, I, I stay on top of them. I make sure they're okay. They have everything they need. Is there anything that I can help you with? Because it's all about relationships. It's a re- relationship building. It's about connections. Mm-hmm. And being a mentor, uh, helping out you know anybody in your path is, is what the Homecoming Challenge is really all about. No, well, that's uh, absolutely terrific. And I would guess that uh, maybe the person going back and trying to be a mentor they might be in a position to learn something from the student that's in college now. Absolutely. What I've loved are the stories of people who, who share hometowns, who share majors. Obviously, these kids are freshmen, so they're, they're thinking about what they want to do. But a lot of times they have aspirations that are directly on point with the mentor who has shown up in their room. Uh, they've got uh, Greek affiliations. Uh, they've got other aspirations, that they and they find things in common. Again, it goes back to the whole premise of my TV show, which is Dana being Dana and that there's a human connection that binds us all. When you get people talking, you realize you have more in common than you do differences. And that's what it's all about. The homecoming challenges is, is a part of that. Uh, and it's just kind of our philanthropic, uh, um, phila- philanthropic arm that we're super passionate about. 
And we've been down. COVID has not let us be great. I, well, no, I can imagine you're you're not alone in that one. And it, and it's funny. One, I would think that uh, some people may be listening to this and think, well, I didn't have a good experience in college. I uh, was overcharged and underserviced, and my collegiate experience was lacking for one reason or another. In, in listening to you, it would strike me as that's all the more reason that yeah. you should go out. It's not and about try you, and, boo. It's not about you. <laughs> try and go back. And, and and it's funny because we did a we did an episode virtually. We pivoted in the pandemic as we do. And one of my favorite stories, my friend uh, Reverend Michael Harris went to Morehouse, and one of the things he said on our episode in October, which was featuring Spellman and Morehouse alums, what he said was Morehouse didn't do right by him in terms of his graduation status and th- he owed money or there was some issue. Um, he graduated, but it wasn't without some sort of hardship. And what he said was. It was because of the homecoming challenge and participating in that. Because in 2019, I went on tour. I took the little money that I had and went on tour. And we got picked up by Kroger, and who sponsored us with uh, gift bags, goodie bags of food to give out to students. And that was just a phenomenal experience. They're back with us again. We're going on tour this year, and we're super excited. This is the kickoff. Great. The oh, kickoff. Well, so um, And that's part of the reason that you're in New York this week. Tell yes. me about this event that you're doing uh, I guess tomorrow, right on the 16th? Friday. Friday. Okay. Friday. Um, yeah, that's so right. Morehouse, you're right, because yeah. it's actually right. Thursday. It's, it's, it's late at night. Yeah, I hear um, you. Morehouse is playing Howard University, two of the you know arguably top uh, HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities in the country. Uh, they are playing a football game uh, at MetLife Stadium, where the Giants play. Um, uh on Saturday. And so before this, we are doing a live podcast um, of my show, Dana Being Dana, featuring the Homecoming Challenge, and we're talking about giving back. It's uh, There will be HBCUs there, so uh, people from all different HBCUs, not just Morehouse, Spelman, and Howard, but people from all over. And we are going to be talking about uh, HBCUs, the importance of giving back, and excitement about homecoming being restored. Homecoming has been down for a couple of years now, right? The pandemic hasn't let anybody be great. And so this has just been an awesome opportunity. Um, and I said, coming from Chicago, I said, we got to come. We got to come. We got to be here. We got to make some noise. So if people want to watch that or participate, is the best way for them to do that Friday to go to Dana being Dana? Go to Dana being Dana on Facebook. We are on Facebook or the homecoming challenge on Facebook. That's where we will be live. Uh, one of our sponsors is Smogo TV, which is a Morehouse-owned uh, production company who is producing uh, our episode on Friday. But uh, to be clear, though, when we talk about the homecoming, uh, the homecoming uh, challenge, it's not just for black people. You're encouraging everybody. That is everybody true. To that is back, absolutely right. right. Uh, yes, my first show um, on a larger scale after we did Morehouse and Spelman was a Big Ten show. I'm from Chicago, so there's a lot of Big Ten grads. There's more than just 10 schools in Big Ten. So tell everybody, make sure everybody knows about that. Um, And so my very first show in 2018 was Big Ten. And we had all, at the time it was 14 schools. And so we had um, uh, people from all 14 schools show up. Northwestern, Iowa, U of I, uh, Indiana. I mean, you think about, I mean, I'm Midwest through and through. I see that. I love it. So it was was great. So that's what, my point is that it's any school any student, any alumni, at any time. It doesn't have to be homecoming. Just whenever you're 
in the vicinity. I, you know, I'm sure it's the alumni that need a little bit more of a, a push to do this sort of a thing because of the busy schedules and because you're in a different place in your life, not necessarily scholastically focused at one time or another. But it strikes me just a couple of weeks ago, you know, I was on the radio at NYU. I, I was WNYU was the radio station. And just a couple of weeks ago, I interviewed Cousin Brucey, the famous DJ. He's on our station Saturday nights. And he was actually the founder of WNYU. And I sent I asked him about WNYU when he was on the show. And I sent the audio of that interview to the people at the radio station now, and I thought they were going to have all sorts of questions about uh, Cousin Brucey and me and, you know, making a transition from being on the radio in college to doing it professionally, and I was surprised. I heard nothing back. <laughs> I feel like um, that maybe maybe the students could also use a little bit of a nudge in terms of seeking mentorship yeah. in certain circumstances. And I think, well, and I, I'm a mother, you know, and I have kids. And so part of it, that generation, I think there's a bit of entitlement too, mm-hmm. and, and just not really knowing. I think technology has in many ways killed some of their communication skills or their budding communication skills. So I wish this is really a call to everybody mm-hmm. to get to talking, to get people off electronics, off phones, off devices, and just having conversation. Uh, I love the pictures that I've seen, the video that I've seen, all of the uh, coverage, because we encourage people. One of the steps, if you accept the challenge, is to share in your own way. You don't have to, because some people are very private about it. But just sharing in your own way about what the experience means to you. Because think about how you would have reacted if a if a graduate from NYU just showed up and said, hey. Sure. You know. Yeah, no, absolutely. It would and, have been big. God forbid if, if you had something in common, right? right? You right. know, if they had any aspirations that were that were in parallel with yours. And that's what I want people to realize. The people like me and you don't realize how awesome they are because they're so mired in, in, in life. Right. And so it's an opportunity to kind of focus on that and hone in on that and pass those gems on to des- to deserving students. What if someone didn't go to college or didn't graduate from college? Is there a way for them to still participate in this, in you terms can, of the idea of mentorship, I think you can. I think some people didn't go to college and they wanted to know could they do it at their high school? Sure, you know, I think high school is a little bit younger because they're not adults, well, so sure. so we kind of stay away from that in terms of our promotion and all that. But it's just all about giving back. I mean, in my life, I've been a, I've served in a mentor in so many different capacities. Again, I've said I'm a, I'm an attorney, so I talk to people who are aspiring attorneys, who are in college, who are younger than that. You can in, just the ability to influence, not you know realizing how incredible you are, and being open to to kids who just are curious, who want to know. We're in a world that that is very much focused on yourself, particularly, and the pandemic has has encouraged that. Right? Don't talk to people because you're going to catch COVID. So it's it's this is about being a bit more open mm. and being a bit more friendly and being a bit more inviting and and just creating some of that connective tissue that I feel like we've lost over time. Well, you are invited here whenever you're in New York. It is a treat yeah. to meet you in person. Woo-hoo. Good luck. I want to encourage everybody to check out the uh, the podcast and this uh, this w- event, the kickoff that you're doing on Friday. People yes. can go to DanaBeingDana.com and fi- follow Dana Michelle and learn more about the Homecoming Challenge. Thank you, Dana. Thank you so much. We'll be live on Friday. It will be live on Facebook at 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock Eastern. 
4 o'clock Eastern. Great. Make sure right. everybody gets their time zone straight. You want to comment <laughs> on any portion of our discussion? We'll cover some other issues a little bit later as well. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We, we don't have to worry about nothing. Cause we got the fire and we burn in one hell of a something. This is Ellie Golding, uh, Burn. I don't remember why I wanted to play this the other day. I think it was her birthday. Um, but we got the rights to it. It took us a couple days. And now, of course, I have no memory of why I wanted to play this. But uh, it's a great song nonetheless. Uh, she's, she's terrific. Ellie Golding, Burn. Hey, a um, couple of things. One, we are still trying to um, raise some money for the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. If you want to help in our efforts, you can go and make a contribution to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. That's walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. Now, Part of one of the things that I thought was really going to be helpful in terms of raising contributions to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, and we did this last year, is I I was trying to arrange this charity softball game for Saturday morning, right? And the thing that I I thought there were going to be so many people that wanted to play in this that we were going to have to have multiple teams and a tournament, right? So lo and behold... It has been like pulling teeth trying to get people to play in this game. It's so stressful organizing. I spent as much time yesterday, close to it, trying to line up players for this softball game on Saturday as uh, as I did working on the show. And then, of course, I then have to deal with my wife, who's playing. She's a good softball player. But she was saying, you know, if you don't have enough players... It's not fun if we only have eight players on each team and we have to use our own catcher and pitcher. That's not fun. I don't want to play if uh, we don't have enough players. And I'm thinking this is exactly what I need. I need the added stress of you threatening me not to play as I'm begging anybody that I've ever met to come and play in this game. You have to see my phone. What I did, and I never delete text messages, so I went back. And since the time that I've had my phone, it's about three years, anyone that I've ever said the word softball to or has ever said it to me, I have invited to play in this game. I've invited people that I don't particularly like. I've invited people that uh, I've been in legal battles with. I've I've invited people that don't even like me. We And it's going to be interesting. We have some good players. My cousin Jessica, I think, is playing. She's a collegiate softball player. She went to college on a softball scholarship. She's going to be the best player that we have. And um, we're still looking for a few more players. So if you want to play, the game's going to be Saturday in Staten Island. You can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. If you're actually a decent, decent softball player, that would be preferred because we could use some more good players to keep up with Jessica. But you know what happens? So as of now, I think we have 16 or 17 players. But day of, 
the same thing happens that always happens. Two or three people always say, oh, I can't make it because of this, can't make it because of that. So I always try to have a little bit of a buffer. So I'd like to get at least 21 or 22 uh, players. So if you want to play, we could use some players. Email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. But if you can't play, I do hope you'll make a donation anyway. Go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com because you're helping the Tunnel to Towers Foundation and a great cause. And uh, I, that guy called the other day. I think it was Ed from Massapequa. I'm wondering if he's actually going to show up because he never emailed me. So I don't know if he's going to play. But if you want to play, we could use the players. If you don't, if you don't want to play, find us somebody that can play. Email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. to get to this hour. Uh, Those of you that are holding, I will uh, try and get to you. Uh, But uh, there is a a ton of news, and it's tough when you have four guests to uh, get to all the stories that you want to get to, but we're going to give it the old college try. Um, And again, if you want to email me, you could do so, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. I follow what's going on in the world of space Pretty closely. I also follow the more unorthodox world of space pretty closely. And one story I wanted to bring to your attention, um, and then one that's a little more science fiction-y, but there, or Ukraine, which is in the midst of a war, and we've been following what's going on there. Big story all over the place, including in the New York Post yesterday. Ukrainian astronomers, believe it or not, are claiming that the skies over Ukraine are crowded not only with Russian missiles, but a large number of UFOs. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, what do the Ukrainians know Uh, They're probably drinking too much Russian vodka. They're probably shell-shocked from all these Russian missiles. Well, no, this is a very serious claim. These surprising claims were outlined in a new research paper published by the Maine Astronomical Observatory of Ukraine's National Academy of Science. The paper titled Unidentified Area Phenomena 1, Observations of Events. This paper claims that researchers have detected numerous UFOs from two meteor observation stations in Kiev and the village of Vinarivka. 
which is about 75 miles outside the capital. The authors of the paper, and I don't know how good their English is, but we're going to try and get them on this show. The authors of this paper said this in, in the paper. We see them everywhere. We observe a significant number of objects whose nature is not clear. Flights of, of single group and squadrons of the ships were detected moving at speeds from 3 to 15 degrees per second. Ukrainian scientists involved in the study described two different type of UFOs, which they called cosmics and phantoms. And there's a composite image from the research paper that shows uh, what the scientists describe as a black phantom object flying through the sky. If you want to see the image, I'm going to link to it on uh, my Facebook page right now at facebook.com slash Morano fan. That's uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Um, according to the paper, a cosmic is a luminous object that appears brighter than the background of the sky, while a phantom is a dark object with a completely black body that does not emit and observes all the radiation falling on it. The main characteristic of the UFOs observed by Kiev's astronomers is their extremely high speed, which can only be detected with specialized equipment. Quote, the eye does not fix phenomena lasting less than one-tenth of a second. It takes four-tenths of a second to recognize an event. Ordinary photo and video recordings will also not capture the UFO. To detect UAP, Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, which is what we call UFOs now, you need to fine-tune the equipment, shutter speed, frame rate, and dynamic range. Using color video cameras with fine-tuned shutter speed, frame rate, and range positioned at the two-meter observation stations, the researchers said they were able to record these unknown objects zooming through the sky. So a composite image of a phantom included in the paper shows the unidentified dark object moving through space. The paper does not say what these objects might be, and it makes no reference to the ongoing war, which is now, of course, in its seven months, in its seventh month, which has seen Russian missiles raining down on Ukrainian cities. You can look at the image for yourself on my Facebook page and judge for yourself. Look, the simplest explanation what do they call that? Occam's razor? The simplest explanation is usually the right one. Um, the simplest explanation is is these are some sort of Russian weapon, some sort of Russian aircraft, some sort of Russian surveillance drone that moves at speeds that the Ukrainian military did not know the Russians were capable of moving at. That's the simplest explanation as to why there's the surge in UAP sightings over Ukraine in the midst of the war. But two things, and if you want to weigh in on this, you can, 800-848-9222. One, don't you think the Ukrainian military, which is now getting a tremendous boost, not only financially, but in terms of intelligence aid from the United States, don't you think the Ukrainian military, with its tremendous amount of intelligence aid from the United States, would know or at least have a pretty good idea of what kind of aircraft, what kind of surveillance drones the Russian military had. That's number one. Number two, and this is where it gets really unhinged. There have been 
allegations, reports, theories for years that UAPs surround missile silos and that UAPs, for whatever reason, gravitate towards nuclear power plants and other nuclear facilities. Russia is a nuclear power. Ukraine has nuclear power plants. There's a theory out there that beings from elsewhere, and I don't know if we're talking about ourselves from the future or beings from, beings from another planet or another dimension, there's a theory out there that these entities may be trying to keep ourselves from blowing ourselves up. And I wonder if that's what's at play here. A nuclear-armed power at war with a country that makes extensive use of nuclear power. And all of a sudden, there's a surge of UAP sightings. Is it just a coincidence? Maybe. Maybe. But I don't know. I think this paper is pretty interesting. Curious what you think. 800-848-9222. Now, um, in the world of pure science fiction, I am a big fan of Star Trek. And I do not remember Star Trek in its first run when it was uh, when it was on. Star Trek made kind of a, a comeback in syndication. And then there was this whole new generation of people that discovered the TV series in reruns. They didn't see it when it was on. They saw it in reruns. And it developed. Oh, this is what happened with Family Guy, actually. There was a whole new generation of people that uh, became fans of Family Guy watching it in reruns or on DVD or whatever the case may be. And it was so popular. The fans were so into it, they brought the show back. Same thing happened with Star Trek. And they were all set, Paramount was all set to bring Star Trek back with um, a show. The show was going to be called, the series was going to be called Star Trek II. Okay, that was what they were, that's what they were going to call it. Well, um, that didn't happen. Instead, there was just so much attention and energy around the bring back Star Trek movement that what we got was Star Trek, the motion picture. 1979, the human adventure is just beginning. Let's talk. Sure. Let me know when that back is ready. I done. All due respect, sir, I hope this is some kind of Starfleet pep talk. I'm really too busy. I'm taking over the set of seat, Will. You're what? I'm replacing you as captain of the Enterprise. You'll stay on as executive officer. A temporary grade reduction to commander. You personally are assuming command? Yeah. May I ask why? My experience. Five years out there dealing with unknowns like this. My familiarity with the Enterprise its crew. Admiral, this is an almost totally new Enterprise. You don't know her a tenth as well as I do. That's why you're staying aboard. 
I'm sorry. No, Admiral. I don't think you're sorry. Not one damn bit. Now, that was a great scene. And if you knew the series of Star Trek, you understand why it was such a great scene. Because what happened was... uh, that was Decker, Commander Decker, Captain Decker, who gets demoted to commander so that Kirk can retake control of the Enterprise. Decker was the son of a Commodore Decker that died in the original series. And it adds a, an element of tension between the two of them. There's a part of Decker that kind of blames Kirk for uh, the death of his father. Star Trek The Motion Picture has some interesting parts to it. By and large, I think, though, that most Star Trek fans would agree it is the worst of the Star Trek films. Some people would say it's Star Trek V, but most people would agree that it was Star Trek The Motion Picture. It made a ton of money, but most Star Trek fans really don't like it, in my experience. It's it's slow. It's a little boring. The uniforms are drab. A lot of the performances are not what those actors are capable of. It's, it's not a great film, especially when you compare it to the film that came after it. Star Trek II. Oh, my goodness. By the way, you know who's going to be here Monday? The director of Star Trek II, Nicholas Meyer. So Star Trek One, or what they call Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was heavily marketed with the tagline, The Human Adventure is Just Beginning. Star Trek The Motion Picture, it's something that fans who have seen all the films, they tolerate, they respect, but I don't think most of them really like it. Usually, if you're a real Star Trek fan, whether you prefer the term Trekkie or Trekker, you usually only watch Star Trek The Motion Picture if you're doing a marathon viewing of the first six Star Trek films. It's usually the only time that you watch it. Okay. Why are we talking about this? Well, there is now a new version of Star Trek The Motion Picture. See, Star Trek The Motion Picture seems to have undergone a reevaluation in the last 10 years. More people seem to like it. There are less complaints about it being the motionless picture. Um, you know you know who directed Star Trek The Motion Picture? Robert Wise, who directed The Day the Earth Stood Still, who directed... Um, you know, who was the editor on the film Citizen Kane, who directed West Side Story. So it's gaining a whole new generation of fans and a new appreciation for it. Well, now, on Paramount Plus, they have released a new version of Star Trek The Motion Picture. They call it the Director's Edition. Additionally, They have released a new Ultra HD Blu-ray set of the director's edition of Star Trek The Motion Picture. Standard retail edition contains two discs, the main film, and a disc of bonus features. So why are we talking about this? Well, the new, according to the reviews, and I haven't seen this new version yet, according to the reviews, this new director's edition is a stunning film which uses modern remastering tools along with the recomposited original elements and new renders of the computer-generated scenes that were inserted for the director's edition. The reviews are saying that this film is gorgeous. The movie looks sharp. The movie looks clean. It has a level of detail and color 
that um, that's never been seen before. The film looks noticeably better in the extremes. Um, the audio quality, they're saying, is great. I have not seen the director's edition. I have not yet purchased the DVD. I think the DVD sells for about, or the Blu-ray disc sells for about $40. Um, and it comes with a commemorative out, you know, jewel case or whatever you call it. I am curious if anyone has seen the new version of Star Trek, the motion picture, the director's edition, and if it's worth seeing, number one, and if it's worth me getting this new cut of it. I think they, they're calling the new cut 4K, um, the original motion picture collection on um, – or maybe maybe that's just what it is in the in the UK. But um, no, 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 4K. That's what they're calling. It. So there's apparently a total of three versions of Star Trek: The Motion Picture. You have the original version that we've all seen. You have the director's, uh, you know, the director's edition, and now they released this new DVD set or Blu-ray uh, Blu-ray version set, calling it the Complete Adventure. So um, I'm curious if anyone has gotten the complete adventure or if anyone has seen the director's edition and if it's worth me getting. So they have the original theatrical version, the special longer version, and now the director's edition. There, Those are the three versions of the film itself. And if you get the DVD, the complete adventure, it includes all sorts of special features. So the runtime of the Robert Wise supervised direction, uh, director's edition is two hours and 16 minutes. That's four minutes longer than the theatrical release. It also includes some of the scenes that Robert Wise left out initially, uh, which then later surfaced in the special longer version. The special longer version that came out in 1983 when the film first aired on uh, television on, on ABC, the network, that was two hours and 24 minutes without commercials. So they essentially added another 12 minutes to that special longer version. So I'm I'm never sure what I'm seeing, if it's the original theatrical version or the special longer version. But I am interested in this new director's edition. So if you've seen it, tell me if it's worth me spending my money. Now, 800-848-9222, the truth is I'm going to get this film. I'm probably going to get it. It'd be like if they came out with a recut of The Godfather or uh, a rene- whatever else, a, fran- a, a recut of a, a Mel Brooks movie that I enjoy. And obviously I'm going to get it. It's just a question of when and what degree of enthusiasm I have for it. I'm curious if you've seen it and what your take is on this. 800-848-9222. Um, in order to be able to play a 4K Blu-ray, you have to have a ultra Blu-ray, ultra HD 4K player. Well, so I have a regular Blu-ray player. It's not going to work. It and, doesn't work? No. And you need a 4K TV. I see. See, I don't have that. Well, I could still then watch the director's edition on, regular on Paramount Blu-ray. Plus. Right. Okay, on so I won't Blu-ray. buy the... F- see, what is 4K? What is that? 4K is 4,000 lines of resolution as opposed to 2K, which is like Blu-ray. I see. Okay, so I have regular. Right. Um, uh, so, okay, so I won't buy this 4K 
Yeah, now they're, talk, and now they're talking about there's 8K wow. TVs. But 4K is now almost like the standard in buying a television now. Got it. Okay. Well, I will. Uh, I am then wondering if I should get this director's edition of the Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, it's uh, apparently getting rave reviews. Curious if you've seen it, what you think. 800-848-9222. You're also welcome to comment on the UAPs over Ukraine. Uh, let me say hello to E. Frank in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes, uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, you know, I, I feel very bad, okay? And I'm just saying this because maybe the show, your show has evolved to a better point now where you're explaining things a little bit better in regards to UFOs. You know, I remember when Donald Trump was the president and he instituted a space force, and he had a reason to do that. I mean, you know, many people are still questioning what space force is. Is it a a separate space uh, agency that enforces uh, the International Space Station and the operations of NASA, what that actually is? But I noticed that now people uh, and military officials are no longer using the word unidentified flying objects. They're using more of a term that has to do with what you just said, IFO uh, term. And and I just want to ask you, Frank, do you think that now that the government is is now getting to state that maybe there is no such thing because now they're redefining everything? Well, no. And thank you, Frank. I, uh, I'm not going to put that much effort into deciphering everything that E. Frank just said. But in terms of the terminology change from UFO to UAP, my understanding is that it was done because when you, people would use the term UFO over the years, it was a term that almost lost all credibility. People pictured flying saucers and little green men and stories of uh, people getting probed and – some of that might be real, some of that might not be real, but it developed such a campy science fiction aspect to it that um, they wanted another term for what happens when you see objects that you can't explain. All right, we can't call them UFO anymore. What are we going to call them? And they came up with this uh, this term, UAPs. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Tom. All right, Tom has other priorities. 800-848-9222. Arnold is in Brooklyn. Hello, Arnold. Oh, hi. I was uh, listening uh, on the air, uh, you know, just general news radio to what that professor from, I think it was uh, Carnegie Mellon, had uh, tweeted. And I said, guy, that's pretty unkind. And uh, she said she was from Nigeria. Are we allowed to say Nigeria on the air these days? Yeah, give it a shot. Okay, so uh, she was from Nigeria, and I remember when I was in college, there was a civil war between the central government and the breakaway province of Biafra. Um, Queen Elizabeth assumed the throne in, like, 52, and by 1960, uh, Great Britain decolonized or began the process of decolonization of Nigeria, and by 1963 they were out of there, and by 1966 the Biafra region, which was one ethnic group, the Igbo tribes people and some other associated tribes, felt abused by the central government, and they seceded from Nigeria. Now, apparently, the British came on the scene around 1880, and apparently in the course of time 
oil was discovered in Nigeria, and the British Petroleum Company, which is largely owned by the Crown, you know, the royal family, had concessions in the eastern region of uh, Nigeria in Biafra. So the central government, uh, I'm sorry, not central government, the British government, it was revealed later, was under the uh, secret papers from the Wilson administration, uh, Harold Wilson, uh, was providing armaments to the central government in order to suppress the rebellion. And the reason that the, se- the secret papers... Arnold, Ar- Ar- you're aware this is a four-hour show, right? We we only have four hours. Yeah, well, the long and short of it was that with the assistance of the British government, the central government imposed a blockade on Biafra, and two million people died of starvation. So I could see why this professor from western Pennsylvania feels abused, but she should have expressed it more fully. There you go. That's what her beef is. Thank you, Arnold. (sighs) Took us a while to get there. Hey, uh, last thing I'll mention on the UAP front, and if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. Headline, Daily Mail. Navy admits it has more UFO videos, but, and I know people hate it when I add a little volume to the word but, but, tough. But, says, releasing the footage publicly would harm national security because it would reveal valuable information regarding the Pentagon's operations and capabilities to America's enemies. The U.S. Navy evidently can't release more UFO videos than it has than it already has because doing so would harm national security that's according to a spokesman the statement was made in response to a freedom of information act request by the government transparency transparency site the black vault i think we're having the guys from the black vault uh, on this show the release of this information would harm national security as it may provide adversaries valuable information during public hearings in may the Navy revealed 400 unidentified aerial phenomenon reports in recent years. Are we buying this? Are we buying that it's all for national security, or do we think there's something else here? 800-848-9222. Let me know what you think. All right. Uh, hey, I'm really excited about this. The U- University of North Carolina, Wilmington, is doing some exciting things in terms of honoring veterans, not veterans from one war or two wars, all the veterans, past, present, and future. And Bill Kaczynski is going to join us. He is a Marine Corps veteran and the director of the Office of Military Affairs for the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. We'll talk about what they're going to do today and uh, how maybe that's a model for what other colleges could be doing. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Well, for a man who swore he'd never return to the Starfleet... Just a moment, Captain, sir. I'll explain what happened. Your revered Admiral Nagura invoked a little-known, seldom-used reserve activation clause. In simpler language, Captain, they drafted me. They didn't. This was your idea. This was your idea, wasn't it? Bones is a thing out there. Why is any object we don't understand always called a thing? Headed this way. I need you. I need you. Badly. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
The great Otis Redding, talking about why he can't get any satisfaction. Uh, And uh, whatever you feel about people using double negatives in a sentence, there's no doubting the musical ability of Otis Redding. And uh, there's no doubting the substantial contributions that uh, veterans have made to American culture, American society, and the uh, history of our country, every fabric of our country. And if you take a good look at leadership in any sector of America, whether we're talking the business community, whether we're talking sports, whether we're talking uh, politics, whether we're talking academia, whether we're talking uh, philanthropy, you are going to find a more than a veteran or two that has learned crucial leadership skills from the military. And that's one of the reasons I'm really thrilled about what the uh, University of North Carolina Wilmington is doing today and in general. And here to talk to us about it is Bill Kozinski. He's a U.S. Marine Corps veteran and the director of the Office of Military Affairs for the University of North Carolina Wilmington. Bill, I know it's early. I appreciate you joining me dark and early. Hey, Frank, it's a pleasure to be on your show this morning. A very exciting day. Well, so Marines, uh, it's no big chore for them to get up early. You've probably run five miles by now, right? <laughs> getting getting close to it, getting close to it. <laughs> but when were you in the Marine Corps, Bill? So I was in the Marine Corps from 91 to 1996. And uh, how would you characterize your experience in the Marines? Uh, something that really forged uh, me and... Uh, paved the way forward for what I want to do for the rest of my life. It gave me all the skill sets, the opportunities, uh, the connections, and just, you know, reinforced uh, my values on, on where I where I wanted to go and how I wanted to serve. Well, that's, that's great. All right. Now, I love what the University of North Carolina Wilmington has done um, in terms of naming Veterans Hall. And I love what you guys are going to be doing today. And I'm really grateful that uh, my friend James Toto, who is an Army veteran, uh, brought this to my attention. So you guys are hosting a big celebration at Veterans Hall. Now, let's talk about the name Veterans Hall first. Now, is this is, I believe, the first major hall that any college or university has named for all veterans. Is that accurate? That is correct. As far as I know, we are the only one in the country, and it's, it's really unique uh, with that, uh, Frank. Normally, uh, most buildings on any college or university campus are named after an administrator, maybe a faculty or a student or someone from, you know, from the community who really felt passionate about what that building and, and, and the programs that may reside in it um, and really wanted to uh, provide uh, financial resources or whatever the case to support those programs and you know, for our board of trustees and for our, our campus community to, to really say, you know, look, we started out as a GI Bill school in 1947. 75% of our uh, first students were veterans from World War II. So, you know, this has been in our DNA, but what better way to pay uh, respect and honor to all those that paved the way than to name a building Veterans Hall for all veterans. So why, why, whose idea was this? Was this your idea to do uh, all veterans or uh, who, who came up with this? Actually, it was uh, several of our board of trustees members. Uh, one's uh, um, father was served in the Air Force. He lives outside of Camp Lejeune for the last 25 years. So military has always been in his life. And it was like, you know, this is an opportunity for us to do something to really, uh, again, honor our roots as a university, but also 
this is such a rich uh, area in the United States for our military and veteran populations, and we really need to, to do this. And so I'm, I'm so thankful for somebody that's in the Office of Military Affairs to, uh, to have this opportunity mm. to come to work each day. So. All right. So uh, tell us what is happening today. What are you guys doing today? So today is really um, kind of a dual purpose. Our university is celebrating its 75th anniversary. So again, as a as a GI Bill, as we started, but how many times that we go throughout our our uh, you know days, weeks, months, and so forth, and we pass these living legends from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and so forth. A lot of times we just don't think about it or, or want to have a conversation. So for us to actually go back to our roots, honor our World War II veterans today specifically, and then um, our veterans from Korea War, uh, World, uh, from Vietnam, from Desert Storm, all the way up through the uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom and so forth. Um, it's such a unique opportunity to have that full spectrum from World War II to present, and uh, we're going to have a huge showing today. There's so many uh, showing up, and it's just it's just going to be indescribable until you're actually in the moment. So, And uh, I know you probably have a bias towards the Marine Corps, but it's not just Marine veterans that are going to be on hand today, right? You got Army, no. you got Marines, you got, I think, everybody except the Space Force. That is correct. That is correct. Well, that's exciting, and uh, it's really, uh, really terrific. Tell us a little bit about Veterans Hall itself. It's a, a pretty large facility, isn't it? That is correct. It's about 150,000 square feet. It's our largest building on campus, and that building kind of completes um, an allied health quad, if you will. So really, this is a, an area on campus that is really designed to uh, ensure that we are doing everything we can to provide health and wellness for not only our local community, but for our region and for our state. So you have all those programs that are are designed for our students, our faculty, and our staff to really concentrate on the health and wellness of, of our community. And there's also going to be a pretty neat flyover at the event today, right? That is correct. We have uh, a wonderful alum who uh, actually did her internship as a, a safety officer working on the construction of the building, who at the same time um, was also a finalist in Hollywood on American Idol, and so to have her come back and sing, and at her last note, we'll actually have the bandit flight team flying over. So um, wow. really. <laughs> that, that's ter- that's terrific. And people are just tuning in. We're talking with Bill Kozinski. He's a Marine Corps veteran. He's the directory, d- director of the Office of Military Affairs for the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. They have named a major facility Veterans Hall. It's the first major college or university in the entire country to name a facility for all veterans, not veterans of one specific war or specific conflict, but all veterans past, present, and future. Bill, are you guys hoping that this will be something that other schools around the country emulate? Are you guys hoping that uh, other schools will follow your lead, or you prefer to be the only school with a Veterans Hall? No. Why, why should we have this all to ourselves as far as that is concerned, Frank? Um, I really want this to be an opportunity where we can share ideas, share um, lines of effort to really enhance the lives of those that have really served our country. And so if another college or institution uh, sees something that we're doing and they can emulate that there at their campus or community, um, hey, we're happy to share what we're doing and, and go for it. We're all in this together. It's not singular for us or anyone else. It's a, it's a chance for everybody to do what's right, and that is to serve those who have so honorably and faithfully served our country. So, 
Are other colleges, obviously UNC Wilmington has a long history of uh, not only being supportive of the military, but sort of having a, a kind of a symbiotic relationship with the military, benefiting a lot from the wisdom and the leadership of veterans, including people like you, uh, and also, um, you know, being kind of a, a very patriotic school with a rich military history. Are other colleges these days... Do you get the sense that they're hostile towards the military? I know in the Vietnam era, there was all sorts of stories of a lot of major campuses, a lot of universities prohibiting army recruitment uh, on uh, college campuses. What is the situation in most levels of higher education these days from what you're aware of? Um, You know, sadly, I think sometimes it... uh mimics a little bit of our society in general. You look at how kind of polarized um, our country is at the moment, and I think it's just, unfortunately, uneducated individuals. And so we really have a responsibility um, as a member of the uh, institution of higher education to provide a thorough and well-rounded education for our our students. And sometimes that that reflects a lot of things that aren't taught in the classroom. Mm. So if you look at the community where you live, and obviously, you know, here in North Carolina, it's a very rich veteran community, uh, one of the largest in the country. And, and, and probably by 2030, if nothing changes, we will probably be home to the largest amount of veterans um, in the country. And so, you know, you don't want to dispel, you know, those folks that are embedded in your community. And as you so wonderfully, uh, as far as the uh, introduction this morning, talked about, you know, all these leaders and folks that own businesses and are your neighbors that have served or maybe a family member has in some compassion or some, you know, capacity, you know, you, you can't throw that out. And so, you know, we fortunately from our very beginning have had this in our, our, um, our uh, DNA. And, and uh, I think it's just a sign of the times, you know, you look back from World War II when 10% of our entire population was serving. Now it's less than 1% has served. So, mm. um uh, hey, um, I had O.B. Murray in studio earlier in the week, and he talked about his time in the Army, and he found his time in the Army to be a very good character-building experience, which helped him with a lot of the things he did professionally later in life. I'm wondering, what kind of um, a training ground do you think the military is in terms of uh, leadership in other sectors? Is it something that you'd recommend to young people? Most definitely. It gives you every tool available to be successful, no matter what career path you decide to go down. Um, it's the most diverse population in the workforce. Um, you obviously learn how to be in a team. Um, all those skill sets, you know, show up on time, you know, leave the, the area that you were just at better than when you found it. Um, you know, it's just there's so many different principles and, and things that you develop while in the military, and they transfer so easily if you just apply to regular life. And I think if uh, more of our young men and women, you know, had an opportunity to serve, whether it's, you know, in reserve or a National Guard or if it was on active duty, um, they would really be setting themselves up for success, not just, you know, in the short term, but for the rest of their life. Is there a way for people that can't come down uh, to North Carolina today to watch the facilities? Are you guys streaming them online or anything like that? Yes, we'll, we will have this streamed online, and, and uh, we'll have a link posted on our webpage. So if people want to go to uncw.edu, this will be on our main page, and you'll be able to it, – it'll be a Zoom link, um, which was just the easiest to set up. But, uh, yeah, we're excited about that. We're going to have it uh, recorded, so we'll be able to have that loaded uh, once the ceremony's done so people can uh, can view. And so 
we have about 100,000 alums, so we're, we're excited about those that couldn't make it in person. But for our, our alum and celebrating our 75th anniversary as an institution, you know, it's a great way to great way to kick this off. So. That's great. Uh, that's great. Uh, Bill Kaczynski, University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Uh, and uh, one of the people responsible, at least in part, for the dedication of Veterans Hall. Bill, I love this. I hope a lot of other colleges uh, follow your lead on this. Thank you. Thank you so much, Frank. I really appreciate what you do in each and every day in supporting our men and women, and uh, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Pleasure is all mine. Bill Kozinski. Hey, if you want to comment on uh, any portion of our conversation or anything we've covered thus far, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. I dream of you more than you dream of me. So yesterday, if you uh, didn't hear the program, we talked a little bit about the role that um, artificial intelligence is playing in creating art. And it's raising a lot of ethical concerns. It's raising a lot of concerns, uh, moral concerns, copyright concerns. It's raising all sorts of concerns. Well, apparently, um, and so let me tell you, every moment that I have had in front of a computer between last night and today, I have been help. uh, I don't want to say creating because it's being created by a computer. I have been giving text prompts to an artificial intelligence artist to create AI artwork. And the person, I think his name is Gary, that predicted that I that this would be addictive, it's totally addictive. I have not been able to stop. The site that I've been using is a, a site called Night Cafe, and I've just been creating artwork after artwork with different text prompts, right? And... Um, it, I'll, I'll tell you more about what I'm doing in a second, but 
interestingly enough, there is this very creepy woman that is popping up in a lot of the AI artwork. Earlier this month, Twitter, a Twitter user posted a thread of spooky images featuring a woman that she calls Loeb, L-O-A-B. I don't know if it's Loeb or Loab. I think it's Loeb, who usually has red cheeks and dark hollow eyes. Since then, the images, which range from unsettling to grotesque, have gone viral. These images of Loeb all come from an artificial intelligence art tool. These tools create images based on text prompts. This is what I've been doing for the last 24 hours. Um, text prompts that users put into the platform and they're having a cultural moment as of late. Just last month, a piece of AI-created art won the Colorado State Fair art competition. Plenty of artists, and I don't consider myself an artist, but it is kind of cool that you can put all these phrases into a, a, a an artificial intelligence thing and then have this artwork pick up uh, like this. Plenty of artists are experimenting with such tools to merge art with technology and create new avant-garde pieces. So this Twitter user is one of them. She writes that she started with the prompt Brando and used something called negative prompt weights. That is, she asked the AI image generator to create the opposite of her text in response. So in response to Brando, the tool generated an image that looked like a logo which read did D-I-G-I-T-A-P-N-T-I-C-S. And she says, I wondered, is the opposite of that logo in turn going to be a picture of Marlon Brando? The artist entered the word that the words that I just entered to you. And that's when Loeb, named for a word that appeared in one of the images, began to emerge. These first images of Loeb aren't particularly frightening. But when this particular Twitter user, she uses the handle supercomposite, began combining them with other neutral images, like a glass tunnel, horrifically unsettling images materialized. And now, because Loeb is something of an Internet celebrity, um, a supercomposite, which is the Twitter user I'm talking about, doesn't want to advertise which AI generator she worked with. She wants to avoid starting some kind of viral trend with uh, people making gory stuff with tools that she used. But at the same time, um, critics say that we have to examine why the AI art generator associates the original Loeb, who looks like a potentially real older woman, with horror. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to share this article. It is a little disturbing uh, because it includes an image of, of Loeb, uh, L-O-A-B. But apparently... This is the image that pops up for all sorts of people that are experimenting with AI. This is uh, a podcast called Post-Apocalyptic Media, in which they talk about on this podcast why Loeb is so scary. Here's the part that's scary, right? It's not Some people are taking this the wrong way, and they're thinking that Loeb the the image of the woman is scary it's not so much the image of the woman you know the fa- the fact that her face is at different proportions and 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 all that it's not really that it's the fact that this face keeps popping up in new 
um, images. So here's how AI works. When you do, when you mess with, with mid journey or one of those, and you can put in, um, you can put in like a celebrity name, right? And then you can have it in different situations. Like say you want to see Steve Buscemi skiing down a mountain, right? I don't know where that came from, but that's what I want to see right now. So you, you put that in there and it's going to show a really close, accurate photo of that. But if you put that exact same thing in again, it's going to be a little different. It's going to be Steve Buscemi looking, but it's going to be not the same angle or things like that, you know, not, and, and it might be recognizable, but the more you do that, um, the more variation you're going to have in that type of image. Well, so this, this user put this, this kind of the same prompt in there over and over again and switched it up, had a bunch of different changes, even did it cross. I think he did it across platform, like from mid journey to Dolly or, or one of, you know, something like that. I know he used his friends prompts. His friend had some prompts for a hallway image. So he threw those in there and it still comes out with the same image of this woman. Now that's pretty interesting. It is pretty interesting that all these people use different text prompts and it still comes out with this woman. That's pretty interesting. So I have created so far about, uh, I don't know, 20 or 30 um, different pieces of AI art. I don't want to say I created it because I didn't create it. A computer did. They, I just clicked which style I wanted it in and I came up with the the text prompt, right? So um, I have had a hand in creating 20 or 30 different pieces of art. Um, so I asked before I came into work last night, I asked my wife to look at all the different creations that I've had a hand in and say, which do you like best? And she picked maybe, I think, four or five of them. And I asked Kenneth just now during the last break to um, to do the same thing, to look at all the different creations and ask which one he likes best. And ultimately, two of the ones that Rachel liked were also two of the ones that Kenneth liked best. So I just posted one on my Facebook page if you want to uh, if you want to take a look at it. The 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 text prompt that I use, I don't remember what style I chose, but the text prompt that I used was Atlantic City becomes Las Vegas. If you want to see what image, and again, the creator that I'm using is Night Cafe, but if you want to see what image gets created with that text prompt, you can log on to my Facebook page at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. But I got to tell you, and you know how skeptical I am of AI, but I am totally hooked, absolutely hooked on this. And it's amazing to me that uh, this has come so far in such a short amount of time. Now you can just create art just by typing an image of what you want to see. And see and picking the style that you want to see. I think this is really interesting. Now, I also um, I I created or had a hand in creating another piece of art, and the text prompt that I used was "Old William Shatner meets Young Captain Kirk." Okay, so if you want to see what that looks like, I tweeted it, 
at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, if you want to see what that looks like, uh, I'm also going to put it on Instagram right now at Morano Vision. Uh, so you can see the Shatner photo or, or AI image on Instagram at Morano Vision. And you could see this Atlantic City one on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. It's really interesting to me. And this low ab, I find very, very unsettling. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thanks for listening. Uh, An interesting thing uh, we are going to potentially see today, um, a major economic blow, and that is the very real threat of a rail strike in this country. Bert Flickinger was on the Cats at Night show last night, and uh, he was talking with Lydia Serrani about exactly what's at stake here, and I think he did a good job laying this out. This is what he said. Inflation leads to recession equals uh, the stock market crashing and the bond market crashing as affects the unionized rail workers. Their underfunded pension plans have to, uh, in both stocks and bonds have to be uh, uh, fully refunded uh, to get back into the green zone on those plans by their employers. So even with an offer of a 6% wage increase, the underfunded pension plan is a bigger part. Uh, so because of uh, the in- the inflation caused the recession, caused the market crash, is going to mean uh, this is going to be a bad strike. And if it is settled, it's going to lead uh, to more inflation. And to your point, uh, rail is so important from the daily commuters in the major markets across the country, as well as the, the long haul product across uh, Canada, as well as uh, America and uh, Mexico in the in the NAFTA agreement. So a lot of consequences. And while some people are, are celebrating uh, producer price inflation was still up over 8 uh, percent year over year which means uh, more inflation coming around the corner. This is a looming catastrophe. Amtrak suspended all long-distance routes in anticipation of a freight rail worker strike that is set to go into effect Friday at 12.01 a.m. Eastern, barring a last-minute breakthrough in negotiations. The impacts of a prolonged rail strike would be absolutely devastating and stretch across a wide range of industries, injecting all sorts of uncertainty into an economy that is still battling high inflation, uh, that's still dealing with a, a stock market that is very tumultuous. And the Association of American Railroads estimates that a nationwide shutdown could idle more than 7,000 trains, and listen to this, cost the economy more than $2 billion a day. 
$2 billion. Now, President Biden, who very famously used to take Amtrak to Washington all the time, Biden and his economic team, they've been personally involved in pushing rail leaders and unions to strike a deal to end this dispute over pay and working conditions. So far, no dice. No dice. Now, we know Biden, um, going all the way back to his time in the Senate, was a longtime champion of labor leaders and of union employees. He's caught between essentially a rock and a hard place because he's caught between his, his push to reduce the supply chain problems, and his, which has helped fuel inflation, and his efforts to co- try to continue to win the enthusiastic support of labor unions. So he's in a very politically unenviable position. Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, blocked a Republican request to force the unions to accept a deal that was recommended by a Biden-formed board um, because Bernie Sanders demanded better sick leave for the workers. Dinner was delivered at the Department of Labor as negotiations continued late into the evening. We will see what happens, but it is going to be very, very interesting. Very interesting as far as I'm concerned. Um, All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. There was was one interesting story. I I saw this. I I don't remember where I saw this. I was out of India about someone that had fallen asleep on a train. And uh, it was it was (laughs) it was uh, very interesting what happened here. A, A fella fell asleep um I can't pronounce this fellow's name. It's a very difficult to pronounce Indian name. But um a gentleman uh was traveling with a 1-year-old baby. And look, traveling with children is always difficult. And as in such times when there's a gesture of kindness, even if it's by a stranger, it's always appreciated. So there was an Indian train where uh, a man was he took to Twitter to share his memorable experience with a traveling ticketed examiner. I, I'm gonna his name I think is pronounced Visak Krishna. And Visak revealed how the railway uh TTE, traveling ticket examiner, shifted to another seat in order to offer Visak his own well-lit seat as Visak was traveling for a one-year-old baby. So that was nice. Um, that that was one of the better deeds that I've seen. But there was another story. Um, I have to find it. I, I, I earmarked it. And, you know, this is the problem. I have so many tabs open at any given time um, that uh, you know, I, I can't remember where it was. But a fellow fell asleep on a train, and it became uh, – he, he got more than he bargained for. I'm going to find the story. But uh, I think it was out of India. And then I'll tell you a story from my own exploit. Sorry for being a little disorganized. This is what happens when you have four guests and you got to prepare for four interviews. You get articles and upon articles all over the place. Meantime, though, let me say hello to John in Freehold. Hello, John. John, uh, I saw that uh, you created that, that image of uh, Queen Elizabeth yesterday, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really... Quite interesting. Um, and uh, I mean, have you been having as much fun with these AI art creations as I have? Uh, unfortunately, I've been working yeah. uh, 
makes one of us. I haven't had a, I haven't had a chance, but uh, I yeah, that picture was actually very creepy. Like it's her looking at a painting of herself, and there was uh, her face was all like mushy and so it's really weird. But um, I saw um, I saw pictures of uh, that lobe or loab you were talking about, right? And um, I don't think it's as big of a deal as people are making it. Like it, the AI is. Uh, I'm sure it, if you ask it to like uh, create what it thinks a human would look like, it would take characteristics of like all kinds of, you know, all different traits of humans and mix it up together. I think that's just the woman that like this AI in particular is envisioning. So that's why it's being used in uh, in all the pictures. It is creepy looking though, isn't it? I think the people are making are, are putting like the prompts in to make it look creepy. You think so? Those are dark pictures. They're not like uh, there's nothing happy about the pictures or anything bright. They're all like weird. Well, you might be right. You might be right. Um, All right. Well, it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be interesting to see if Loab uh, is a popular Halloween costume this year. That's for sure. No, but thank you for. I I can't wait to use Night Cafe. It's you've opened up like a whole nother world to me. Yeah, it, I mean, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. It's uh, really, I, uh, I, I just shared one of the Shatner image I created on Instagram, and I'm, I'm excited. You know, I haven't paid to buy more credits yet to uh, make more creations, which you can do. But if you share on Instagram and tag, um, you know, Night Cafe, they give you more credits. I'm excited to create. I don't have to wait till 8 p.m. now to get my credits refilled. I can create three more in- images today. Yeah, and don't forget, Frank, like, you're, you're still an you, you say, like, uh, you're not an artist. You are an artist. Uh, you, you're telling the AI what to do. Well, so. So yeah. I, I My yeah, wife uh, was very, very quick to, uh, when I referred to myself as uh, as an artist, she was very quick to make clear that I knew that I was not an artist. <laughs> <laughs> Well, have a good night, Frank. Thank All right. you so much. Thank you very much. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we're, we're doing. Hey, very excited. Seth Grossman is going to be here in about 15 minutes. Seth Grossman, I like Seth Grossman. I've always sort of viewed Seth Grossman as the conservative Ralph Nader, but he's, he's quirky. He's quirky. And... You almost get the sense that he's your quirky conservative uncle who um, has ranting Facebook posts. And that's how even, I think, uh, the Politico New Jersey referred to him. But he runs this group called Liberty and Prosperity, and they're the ones that brought this lawsuit to force the casinos in Atlantic City to, um, you know, to pay their fair share of taxes. So... Um, believe it or not, the state is opposing him, and he won in the first round. It's got to be one of the first uh, the first instances that I'm aware of where the state is actually going to court to collect less taxes. So it's a bizarre situation. I've been talking about it uh, a, a great deal over the last few weeks, and I think that um, I'm eager to hear what's behind the Seth Grossman decision to uh, to go to court on this. So it's interesting. Hey, uh, 800-848-9222. There is egg salad on the premises. I uh, picked up a new batch of egg salad from my Aunt Camille yesterday, and it is uh, pretty delicious. Now, 
I notified you, Matt Blaze, of this yesterday but or when I left, but um, you apparently did not have any bread and were not able to eat it without, without bread. Have you since br- brought in bread? I have not brought in bread, but I did eat some earlier tonight. Oh, you did? Uh, I did. How were you able to consume it without bread? I just ate it right off the plate. Ah, see, that's the way to do it. I went rogue. Yeah, that's that's the way that's the way to do it. Uh, how come you didn't end up bringing in bread? I forgot. Yeah. So I was like, I'm just going to eat it right off the plate. And I will say, I, I tasted a hint more pepper. Ooh. Did you notice this? I, I actually did, did not no- notice that. I did. I, I noticed will, uh... a little pepper. Yeah. More than usual. Now, uh, Kenneth, you are not able to have egg salad either because it has dairy in it, right? Correct. And remind me, what is your issue with dairy? It's not lactose intolerance, right? It's something else? So it's like the specific protein, like whey or casein. It messes see. with me. Okay. And uh, what, so what are you doing for your birthday today? Well, aside from working here, um, I don't know. I mean, we obviously have work tomorrow. So probably Friday night, I'll do something in the city with some friends. All right. Well, that'll be fun. Well, what are you going to do? Go to a bar or something? Yeah, probably like a club. You know, DJ Blaze on the on the board. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be something. That'll be something. Well, you glossed over something, Frank. Yeah. What's that? Kenneth has never had egg salad ever. Well, I mean, if he can't eat dairy. Well, that was that's only been for the last couple of years that he couldn't eat dairy. Oh. Not, he didn't even know what egg salad was. Th- this is true. You asked me what egg salad is, right? You did, you had no idea what even egg salad yeah, is. Yeah, no, I, I I heard of it, but I didn't know like what exactly was involved with it. Like, what, what, what exactly? Your mom was. never made you egg salad or anything? No, I, no, never had it. Well, yeah, I, I think you, I don't want to say you grew up deprived, but uh, I mean, look, I guess there are worse things. But uh, all right, hey, whatever works, whatever works. Um, so I can't find this story. I think it was out of India where that something funny happened with someone falling asleep on the train and then waking up hundreds of miles away uh, from their destination, right? So I, I can't find it. It was a good story, um, and now now I can't find it, which is going to drive me crazy. It's going to absolutely drive me crazy. So anyway, it got me thinking, though, about falling asleep on mass transit. I am a habitual sleeper on mass transit. I fall asleep on buses. I fall asleep on trains. Something about the motion just, um, you know, it just really, I find it very soothing. Ferries, I can't tell you how often. It used to be when you took the Staten Island Ferry that if you didn't get off, it would just continue, it would go the other direction. Meaning if you're going from Manhattan to Staten Island and you didn't get off because a lot of tourists would stay on just so they could go for the ferry ride and then go back to Manhattan, now they make you get off. But I can't tell you how often, especially when I was in college, I would fall asleep on the Staten Island ferry and then wake up only to find myself going back in the direction that I just came from. But uh, I've missed my stop on the bus Many times, many times. And um, I remember one time I had one too many. And I remember exactly when it was. It was a Friday during the third trial of John Gotti Jr. Maybe there was the second trial. Second trial of John Gotti Jr. And I, um, the, I, I went out 
for the day. They let us out of court early. And uh, they kind of had a half day on Fridays. They let us out of court early. And I went out for drinks in the middle of the day with a uh, very cute reporter with another, from another media outlet. I was very single at the time. This is 15 years ago. And uh, we proceeded to have many Bloody Marys. Many. Then she left. And at the particular establishment we were at, I run into someone else that I know. And I proceed to have a bunch of drinks with them. And then this happened to be across the street from my favorite bar. It's since closed, but it was a bar that I used to go to all the time. So I walk across the street now that that bar is open. And basically it's a seven or eight hour drinking session. So I said, all right, well, I better go home, hop on the train to go to Midtown, right? I was downtown. I was going to Midtown. Hop on the train. I fall asleep on the train. (laughs) The next thing I remember... I'm in the back of a cab, like a car service cab. And I don't know what's going on, right? I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. And I asked the driver, try to sound cool, right? Not panicked at all. I asked the driver, excuse me, where are you taking me? And he says, well, I'm I'm taking you to 33rd and 8th, which is where you asked me to take you. I said, oh, good. Well, you know, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Good. Great. And we're almost there, and I'm trying to piece together the last, how I got from falling asleep on the train to the back of this taxi cab. And I say, uh, hey, if you don't mind me asking, I know this may sound like a silly question, where did you pick me up? This was before the days of Uber or anything like that. And he says, uh, Astoria. Picked you up in Astoria, Queens. (laughs) So I got on the train fell asleep, woke up at the last stop, which I guess was Astoria, and somehow I had the wherewithal to get in the back of this uh, this car service cab and tell him where to go. Didn't remember any of it. But that was my most bizarre situation, falling asleep on a train. You ever fall asleep on a train? I'd be curious as to your best story of falling asleep on a train or a bus or whatever form of mass transit, ferry even, and what became of it and what your adventure was. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, I don't know if you're a big mass transit guy, so I don't know if you've had many occasions to fall asleep on mass transit, but yeah, have you? I did. Um, well, I was lucky because when I took the bus, I was the first stop and the last stop, so I can't really miss my stop the last stop but there was an occasion that i went a stop before in other words if i missed the bus i could just drive up to the next stop and get there before the bus mm. so i did that once and next thing i know i woke up at the last stop i see so then i had to take a cab to where my car was which is only you know a mile away or something but i have done that uh kenneth what's your deal you ever fall asleep on mass transit yeah so i actually the first or second week doing this shift, I was so tired on the train ride home that I set an alarm to wake up. Like See, that's smart. I knew it would be like smart. 40 minutes, but the alarm didn't even wake me up. So when I opened my eyes, I looked out the window, and it was my stop. And in the nick of time, oh, I wedged out. in between the door and was able to get out. You made it out. Alex Barnard says he always uh, he always falls asleep on Metro North if he's visiting his alma mater. Vassar to give something back, as uh, Dana 
Michelle was uh, was uh, explaining. You know, I think this was the story. Maybe it was in India. So a man woke up after spending the night on a sleeper train to find out it never left the station. A man was surprised when he spent a night on a sleeper train and he woke up to discover that it didn't leave the station. Jim Metcalf is a regular user of the Caledonian sleeper service from Scotland to London, and he was baffled when he woke up in the wrong city, not knowing that the train had been canceled due to the heat wave. This was back in July. So he said, quote, in, uh, he, he talked about it on Twitter, in 15 years of using this train and through many bizarre twists and turns, this has to be the strangest yet. Wake up and the train never left Glasgow. It was just, it just sat here all night, and now we've been thrown off at 5.30 in the morning in the wrong city. I think that was the story. So he told the BBC, I can sleep. I can't sleep before it starts moving, so I get on early, and I try to sleep first. And then, sure enough, his train was canceled. So that was something. He ended up slip, sleeping the whole time. On that train. Curious if you've ever had a bizarre experience uh, falling asleep on mass transit and what became of it? What made what what funny story do you have? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I wonder I'm getting a lot of feedback on this uh, Instagram image that I just posted of William Shatner. This AI generated art. And if you want to see it, you can do so at Morano Vision. That's M O R A N O Vision. But um, I'm wondering I, if Shatner is going to like this because I did tag Shatner in my tweet. And uh, you could see it again at Frank Morano or on Instagram at Morano Vision. And I'm wondering if he's going to like it. I don't think he will because it doesn't look that much like him, it's not the most flattering image. But he might because it is it is kind of weird. And Shatner's got kind of an offbeat personality. If you are not following Shatner on Twitter, you're missing out because so much of his day seems to involve Twitter fights with people. I hope when I'm 91, I'm still getting invi- involved in Twitter fights with people or whatever replaces Twitter at that point. All right, 800-848-9222. Seth Grossman is, is going to join us in a moment. We'll talk about what what's happening in South Jersey, what's happening in Atlantic City, and uh, there's a lot of interesting things going on with respect to Seth Grossman. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. The AC Report, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is the AC Report. Well, 
they blew up a chicken man in Philly last night And they blew up his house too Down on the boardwalk, they're ready for a fight Gonna see what them racket boys can do Now there's trouble bussing in from out of state And the DA can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade And the gambling commissioner's hanging on by the skin of his teeth Everything dies, baby, that's a fact But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back Put your makeup on, fish your hair up Ah, yes, it is time for our weekly look at one of the most interesting communities in the world, Atlantic City. And I'll tell you, one of the most interesting stories involving Atlantic City right now has to do with taxes. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, we've been telling you how a court decision actually found these casinos in Atlantic City are not paying enough in taxes. Well, we have the man behind the group that brought that court challenge, and we're going to find out how a small group took on the casino pilot and won. This is really a real-life David and Goliath situation, although in this case, the David win means a win potentially for the taxpayers of Atlantic City and New Jersey. Very pleased to be joined by Seth Grossman, attorney, former Republican candidate for Congress, former member of the city council in Atlantic City, and the founder of Liberty and Prosperity. Seth, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. I know it's a tough hour. I appreciate it. It really is, but good morning. And we really feel like uh, all these years, libertyandprosperity.com, and that's where all the details of our group on. Uh, we've been around for 20 years, founded in 2003. And, and so, let, yeah. No, uh, so tell people what what is what is Liberty and Prosperity. I followed it for almost that long, but uh, for folks that are unfamiliar with LibertyandProsperity dot com, tell us what it is. Well, even though we're called like a libertarian group or a Tea Party group, we started uh, before the the Tea Parties again in, in two thousand three uh, because we were just fed up with Republicans as well as Democrats, uh, the George Bush Republicans, the Clinton Democrats, the uh, you know the and the, the Jim McGreevy Democrats and the, the, the Chris Christie, uh, Christie Todd Whitman Republicans. Uh, in many ways, we're like the John F. Kennedy Democrats, uh, you know, libertarians, pro-Americans, uh, pa- you know, patriots, but with common sense. And uh, in, in many ways, we've been unpopular because we promote the Constitution. We promote fair, equal treatment for everybody. We promote uh, American culture. So in many ways, we're like at a football team where half the fans are rooting for one team, <laughs> half the fans are rooting for the other team, and we're rooting for the referee. Well, I love so, that. I, I, I love that. Uh, I love those uh, – the way you phrase that and the, sort of the odd coalitions that uh, th- that have emerged not only with respect to this court case but with a lot of the things that uh, Liberty and Prosperity does. Talking with Seth Grossman, learn more about uh, Liberty and Prosperity at libertyandprosperity.com. Seth. Just by way of background, uh, you're pretty outspoken, pretty conservative, not at all politically correct. I know in the 80s, you served on the uh, city council in Atlantic City. 
How did you ever get elected to uh, serve on the city council in Atlantic City, a city which has always been uh, pretty progressive? Were the elections nonpartisan in those days? Yes, they were nonpartisan, so it was possible uh, for someone like me to get elected. And even though I'm a conservative and and would be called like right-wing Tea Party today, I grew up in Atlantic City, grew up in the public schools, so I had many friends from high school uh, where I was just one of a handful of the white kids uh, in uh, our junior high school, for example. Uh, I was in our National Guard unit, which was commanded. Uh, the, the New Jersey National Guard unit was actually founded as an all-black unit uh, with black officers and, and most of the traditions of that all-black unit. That, and, and that story of that uh, Atlantic City National Guard unit in itself uh, is a story very much like the uh, the Hellfighters of Harlem in World War One. So uh, so I absorbed that. So I I was like a a Jewish guy in a mostly non Jewish town, a white guy in a mostly black town, a Republican in a mostly Democrat <laughs> town. But yet uh, I learned so much because uh, because we in Atlantic City were always very independent. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but the the TV series of uh, Boardwalk Empire where for years Atlantic City was one of the last of the uh, major cities where the, uh, the black community uh, began voting Democrats. Uh, we always had political black leadership uh, because, as you remember, most blacks voted Republicans sure. steadily until the 1930s. And, in fact, in Atlantic City, Republic, uh, blacks were voting Republican right until the 1950s and 60s. And uh, the, the leading black Republican club was called the Stan Patters, uh, meaning uh, you know, the rest of the black community in America could go to, with the Democrats, but we're standing pat with the Republicans because we were always a town uh, that was built on small business, uh, individual enterprises. The government was never your friend. The government was always the inspectors and the, uh, the people shutting down <laughs> illegal gambling, illegal uh, liquor, because we were based on freedom. We were actually a libertarian town to give the tourists whatever they want. And it was always the progressives who were trying to shut down our economy, starting with the, uh, I guess, the most notorious Democrat progressive, our governor, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, back in the 19, uh, 1908. So, so we have this Republican, independent, anti-government tradition and an African-American Republican tradition. So I guess that's the town I came out of. And Atlantic City is always like a, a microcosm of America mm. uh, because, uh, you know, we have all the elements of very ethnic group. And we actually have a saying uh, in Atlantic City that what happens to America happens to Atlantic City first. I love it. I, I, I love it. So, Seth, uh, talk to me about this this court case. Uh, some listeners may not have heard the previous segments that uh, that I've done on this. Explain to us what the issue is here and why Liberty and Prosperity chose to make this their cause. Well, the, the issue goes back to uh, the founding of America, when Thomas Jefferson and, uh, and, and, uh, and John Adams were political rivals who hated each other. Uh, but when they got older, they started writing and became friends. And they were worried about the future of America because the Constitution had a couple of flaws in it that they wished they could fix. And basically, in the 1830s, 1840s, after we had a major uh, uh, catastrophe called the, the Panic of 1837, uh, America fixed those problems with state constitutions, and the problem was corruption and debt, that the, the government officials back in the 1830s were just spending money to, to reward people who would vote for them, 
Uh, and because they didn't want to raise taxes, they'd just be borrowing money, and it led to an economic collapse that was really more devastating than the Great Depression of the 1930s. Now, this has been totally erased from history, and what also was erased from history is the way America fixed that problem. And they fixed that problem with state constitutions uh, in almost every state, including New York, including New Jersey, that said that if you tax people, the tax rate had to be equal and applied to everybody, uh, that you couldn't make special deals for special people. Uh, everybody had to follow the same rules. And until the progressives <laughs> destroyed all that stuff, starting with Woodrow Wilson in 1910, 1912, uh, Federal Reserve, at the state level, uh, that caused remarkable success. Uh, New Jersey had low taxes uh, because everybody was taxed easily, uh, equally. We had very little corruption uh, because there was nothing for politicians to give you. If you spent money to elect a politician, he couldn't do you favors because the politicians, uh, because our, our constitution would not allow it. So basically, we still have a constitution on the books that says in New Jersey, uh, all real estate has to be assessed at the same method and taxed at the same rate. Now, the progressives have undermined that a lot. They said, well, you could have a special deal for senior citizens, special deal for farmers, a special deal for uh, veterans, a special deal for, uh, quote, uh, economic development to re, you know, for uh, blighted areas. But they never said you can make a special deal for casinos. So basically, uh, back in 2008, when we had this financial collapse, um, it, there was a problem. And the problem wasn't the financial collapse. Uh, the real problem was uh, our governor, Republican Governor Chris Christie, who was president. And, uh, and what happened is when, when basically Atlantic City lost half of its income, half its tax base, half of everything because of the – not just the, you know, the 2008 uh, you know, housing uh, – finance uh, bubble uh, burst, but also because of competition from casinos in Pennsylvania. So, so the city you know, was not collecting the taxes. And we had a balanced budget law that said that the, uh, the city should have cut spending. But the city never cut spending because Chris Christie, the governor, was running for president. And he didn't want to have any labor problems like a guy called Scott Walker in uh, Wisconsin. So, we, so he allowed Atlantic City to illegally spend $400 million, put the city $400 million in debt, and the taxes got so high, even the casinos could not afford them. So what you had, you had a bunch of emergency packages, and one of those packages gave uh, casinos a special tax break. Instead of taxing them on the value of their casinos, uh, they were being taxed on income. And at first, this sort of worked out because uh, sports betting and internet gambling sort of made the casinos pay the fair share uh, so they were still paying 50% of the, uh, the tax, uh, tax base. But for some unknown reason, the casinos used their influence and, and got uh, the legislature to change the law in the middle of what was supposed to be a 10-year recovery plan, and they knocked out the internet gambling and they knocked out the sports betting. So it gave the casinos like a, a huge tax break to knock them from paying 50% of the city's tax base to 40% of the city's tax base, and it's clobbering the rest of the city and the rest of the county. So we took it to court based on our constitution that says everybody has to be taxed equally at the same rate. And, and uh, to, to everybody's surprise, the judge uh, agreed, and, and now the state is scrambling. They're trying to appeal. They're trying to do all this stuff to, 
to stay our judgment, but that's where we are right now. Now, uh, to me, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with Seth Grossman. He's the founder of Liberty and Prosperity. You can check them out at libertyandprosperity.com. Uh, to me, this is so interesting for a bunch of reasons. One, because it seems like this is one of the issues where folks on the left and the right can sort of meet on. And uh, I think everybody wants casinos to f- pay their fair share so that regular, ordinary people don't have to make up the the shortfall. But it's also interesting to me in because it's one of the, the instances, one of the rare instances in my memory, where the state of New Jersey or any state government actually is going to court to try to collect Less taxes. Uh, I'm one, also, Seth, uh, one listener says that uh, he had a tough time hearing you. If you're on a speakerphone, uh, maybe you could oh, come I'm, off the speakerphone. I'm sorry. I'm not on a speakerphone. I'll try to what, – what I'm really doing, I'm staying with my daughter and, and grandson, and they told me if I wake up the baby tonight, I'm getting kicked out of the house. So, uh, I guess I'm <laughs> – Understandable. <laughs> well, well, I don't want you kicked out of the house. Tell me, what is the next step in this court case, uh, Seth? I know the state is appealing, and uh, you won the lower court decision. Where do we go from here? What's the timetable? Well, of course, the state is trying to stay uh, this decision uh, by not having the state collect this extra tax money uh, from the casinos. And it's obvious what they're doing. Uh, they want to delay this. And so uh, after six months, we'll say, OK, the casinos are behind a year and a half in taxes. And if we collect these taxes now, uh, it'll cause a financial catastrophe and force the casino to close. So they're trying to create a crisis so we are moving forward to, say, start collecting the money right away. Uh, this will be battled in a, the, the lower court on October, uh, first Friday in October, and then we're trying to get this heard by the Supreme Court uh, as soon as possible. So uh, there's going to be a lot of action here in the next uh, month or two. And uh, this is very interesting. I, uh, You know, uh, there was there's a snarky kind of political newsletter from New Jersey that I do subscribe to. It's Politico New Jersey. And I subscribe to Politico New York as well and National Politico. None of them are really quite as snarky as Politico New Jersey. And the editor of this uh, newsletter, he kind of makes these comments before posting the articles. And what I really want to read is is the articles. And what he said in the case involving, um, in the article about liberty and prosperity in this court case He said when he's not posting stuff on social media, Grossman can be effective. Uh, What do you think of the characterization that exists of you and the perception that exists of you in New Jersey mainstream political and media circles? Well, well, he's talking about when I was in the debate running for Congress, uh, there was a particular candidate in the primary election who was saying, vote for me. Uh, because I'm uh, an Indian, an Indian from India. Uh, how can you make the Republican Party more inclusive? And I just snapped back. I said, this whole diversity idea is a bunch of crap. It's un-American. I said, people should be judged by their talent, their skill, their work and achievement, not by how many diversity uh, boxes you could check. Uh, so when I, it turned out that there was a I guess an underground uh, stalker you know, for the Democrats had taken the whole thing on video, and they acted like this was a big scandal uh, by, by saying the obvious. And, uh, and because of that, uh, uh, my campaign was sabotaged, not by the Democrats, but by the uh, New Jersey political establishment, by Kim Guadano, 
by uh, Doug Steinhardt, by Tom Kane Jr., and, I, and I, I forget who the other one was, and nationally I was denounced. So I think that's what Politico, yeah, the, yeah, by talking the truth on the issues that matter most, uh, you're called uh, too radical for the uh, establishment Republicans. I think that, that's what Politico was talking about. Back in 2018, you did run for Congress, even with all those challenges, you narrowly lost to a conservative Democrat by the name of Jeff Van Drew, who's now very famously, after switching parties in the midst of impeachment, he's now a Republican. How do you feel about Jeff Van Drew these days? Are you uh, are you liking him these days, or do you think... That, that, you think? That, that is another typical Atlantic City experience. <laughs> uh, you know, they say we're... we're, we're Anywhere in the world, there's six degrees of separation. But if you're from Atlantic City, it's two degrees of separation. Jeff Andrew uh, is a dentist. My father was a dentist. Jeff Andrew used to work for my father. Uh, when he was a Democrat, I went to every one of his political barbecues. In fact, I was at his yearly barbecue last week. And the only barbecue I did not attend was the one when I was running against him. So, uh, but but I respect them. And again, we all come from that Atlantic City tradition, where you don't depend on the government to fix your problems. Mm. The government is corrupt. The government is is abusive. People uh, spend money. They say it's for the public good, uh, but it's really for the good of uh, uh, you know whoever's uh, you know, helping your your friends. Uh, when I was on city council, I found out very quickly. Everybody says, "Yeah, I'm for just necessary spending," but I'm against waste, fraud, and abuse. So what's the difference between essential spending and waste, fraud, and abuse? Well, if me and my family are getting government money, it's essential spending. But uh, you know, money for somebody else is waste, fraud, and abuse. So Jeff Andrew is out of that Atlantic City tradition, and, uh, and, and I think he did a great thing. And I think by running as a liberty conservative guy and coming as close as I did, and I would have won that election if I hadn't been sabotaged by my uh, favorite, you know, my, by the leading Republicans in that blue wave election. But uh, in, in a way, Jeff is carrying the torch for that uh, Atlantic City conservative uh, strain that, that's so famous in South Jersey. I characterize you from time to time as the conservative Ralph Nader. Is that a, is that a fair or an unfair description? Uh, it, it may may be, but but while instead of going into labels, here are some of the issues, and you could judge us by the issues uh, that we deal with. Uh, I, I think uh, Brian Kilmeade is is one of your guests later tonight. Yeah, he's going to be on in about forty five minutes. Uh, but but one of the interesting things he, you know, we're talking about education and how the progressive left or or the the, the socialist, the communist, whatever you want to call them, are really. Uh, brainwashing our third generation of Americans. And one good example of that, the, uh, in, in this new curriculum, the, what they call the Amistad uh, curriculum, to so-called teach the truth about slavery in America, how, how America was an evil racist country based on slavery. Uh, and they say that anyone who opposes this curriculum uh, you know, is a racist or a denial of the evil of American history. But it's really the Democrats and the progressives who are erasing history. And a typical example is this Barbary War, uh, Thomas Jefferson's war against the Tripoli mm. pirates, where Brian Kilmeade wrote a whole book about it. Now, that has special meaning in Atlantic City because one of the heroes in that war was a Richard man named Summers. Richard Summers yeah. of Summers Point, who died on the ship the Intrepid. 
And so every year on September 4th, we just had it, uh, we have a memorial in Summers Point to celebrate his life. And when you learn that uh, the story of the, uh, the, the Barbary Wars, it really wasn't a war against Barbary pirates. It was a war against a thousand years of Islamic jihad, uh, where for a thousand years you had uh, Islamic uh, kingdoms would run loose on the seas and attack every coastal village, every ship in Christi Christian Europe, take them back to Africa and sell white European Christians and Americans into slavery uh, and, and under the most barbaric conditions. And yet you, know, you won't even see that in any history book. And the rest of Europe, after they got tired of fighting uh, you know, th this barbaric slave trade, they would just pay the, the uh, Islamic kingdoms of North Africa, uh, Morocco, Algiers, Tripoli, uh, Tunis. Uh, they pay bribes, ransom, and tribute. But it was the Americans who said millions for defense, not one cent for, for tribute. tribute. Right. And yeah. we, we, we built a navy. We sent it over, and we ended a thousand-year slave trade. And what's even more remarkable, when Americans fighting that war saw the evil of Americans being sold and bought and sold as, as, as slaves, uh, that really started the anti-slavery uh, – added urgency to the anti-slavery movement in America, led to the Underground Railroad, led to all sorts of things to end slavery in this country. And yet that, that whole episode completely erased from American history. Uh, because it's politically yeah incorrect. no you're exactly right uh, I uh, very briefly Seth uh, because we're just about out of time but I have to ask you about this one of the things that I've given you a great deal of credit for both when you ran for state senate this year when you ran for Congress previously and when you've run for office uh, before is that you're one of the few prominent New Jersey politicos that I know that's willing to run off the line in the whole up and down um, a Republican and Democrat, uh, South Jersey, North Jersey. There seems to be such a fear that the party organization doesn't back you. If the county leadership doesn't give you their line, people don't even think about running. My question for you is, why are you such a rarity? In New York, people run primaries as the insurgent all the time. But in New Jersey, it seems to be a, a very rare thing to run as the off-the-line candidate. Educate me a little bit about Jersey politics. Why is that the case? Well, it's really the case uh, because in primary elections, few people vote in primary elections. Few people even know about primary elections. And that's when you realize that this whole get out the vote, your vote is important, uh, we need high turnout. Uh, notice how the media and the establishment only talk about the November elections. They don't talk – and, and, the, and the November election is when you're voting between the lesser of two evils. The real power, the real election uh, is like school board elections and primary elections. And because so few people know about it, because there's so little turnout, uh, only the regular uh, you know, pe people who have a, a city job, a county job, a city contract, a county con uh, contract, uh, a state job, uh, the, the political unions, they dominate those primary elections. So you really – an independent like me doesn't have a chance of winning unless you do a couple of things. And one of them is you have to generate interest in issues uh, to motivate people to come. But even more important, and this is a trick I discovered accidentally, uh, the, the reason I lost my election for state senate is that the uh, 
the political insiders controlled the ballot. So when I ran last year, they put me in what they called ballot Siberia. You would look at the ballot and you'd see all the establishment candidates lined up in one column. And you had to go all the way to the other end of the voting machine <laughs> to find my name by itself in row F. And so the only way a can, an independent candidate can, uh, can have a chance of winning is you have to what's called build a column. So you can't just run as an independent for Senate. You have to run, run with somebody for county for, uh, a commissioner, uh, for local office, for state office. So you have a row of five mm. or six candidates. And that takes work. That takes preparation. And most independent people don't think about running for office until three or four months uh, before uh, the election when it's too late to do that kind of arrangement of the ballot. Seth, I have to end it there. It's always a treat to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for the great work you're doing. And uh, best of luck with this lawsuit. Please keep us posted. If people want to learn more about your work, they can go to libertyandprosperity.com. It's libertyandprosperity.com. Thank you, Seth. And thank you. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you are going to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. We play on this show. Just join our Facebook group, uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M O R A N O Radio Fans and Haters. So I-, I cannot stop creating AI art during the commercial. Just now, I just I just created more AI art. I just can't stop. Uh, Matt Blaze, you created you. Uh, t- tell people what you created. What you just emailed to me. I emailed you two things. Yeah. So describe well, the, them. the first one I emailed was this is the text Curtis Sliwa. In the mat format, and I notice if you do different formats, different right. different things. Are you come using up. the same thing I am, Night Cafe? Yes, mm-hmm. and I, I'm out of credits, mm-hmm. but right. yeah. So I will say um, it's a pretty cool rendering. I mean, you see buildings of a city. Right. You see a guy who looks like he's wearing a red sweatsuit with what kind of looks like the Wu Tang Clan symbol in the middle of it. Well, that is pretty cool. Um, I am uh, so. Why don't you? Why don't you put that in the Facebook group so right, people can it. see it? You know what I'm going to do, and I know I, I'm trying to limit myself to only posting one of these per day. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to put in the Facebook group an image that I just created, and I think it's uh, brilliant. It's a Groucho Marx robot. Okay, it is really cool. So I am going to uh, I'm going to put that in the Facebook group. If you want to see it, just go to Morano Radio Fans and Haters now. Uh, Obi, uh, let me give you some uh, background here. Friday night, 
my wife and I go out to dinner. We're trying out a new babysitter to stay with Carmine while he's asleep for a couple hours. And um, my wife and I go out to dinner. We have a nice dinner. I finish my meal. My wife shockingly does not. That's usually how it goes. She gets a doggy bag. Okay, right. That's Friday. Uh, Obi Murray was here on Tuesday morning, right? Tuesday morning. Okay. Now, Obi and I are leaving the same time. I have my car. He lives in Manhattan, so he doesn't need a car. I said, why don't I give you a ride home? And uh, he says, okay. Now, he comes in. And he comes into the car, and I think he's busting my chops, right? Because that's what, you know, we're old friends. It's what we, what we do. We bust chops. And he says, oh, it smells like garbage in here. And I don't think anything of it. I drop him off. Then yesterday, I go into the car when I go into work. The car stinks. The car stinks. I found the pasta and shrimp that Rachel had taken home from the restaurant from Friday. Four days. And it it really did stink. It was terrible. Let that be a lesson to you. Your influence counts. Use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Are you a sitter or a stander? I am a guy who, when I'm on the radio, I actually prefer to stand. But these days, I end up sitting more just because it's more it's more um, convenient to to uh, sit. We um, I, see. I would love like a standing console. And uh, I think there's a standing desk in here, but it gets mostly used for, um, you know, putting things on. It's it's in here, but there's, the, you know, papers and staplers and, uh, you know, whatever else on there. Uh, and if you stand, I, I, I do sometimes stand during the show, and I find that it's it's a lot easier to keep your breath up, keep your energy up, uh, and it, it it's a little more difficult to press the controls that I have to press, the phones and things like that, and to see the computer screen. But I do like it. I, I feel like I like the way that it's it, you speak and you kind of have a better flow of energy. You have a more of expanded diaphragm. And a couple of years ago, I read that standing is so much more healthy for you than sitting. They say sitting, excuse me, they say sitting is the new smoking. And I don't know how accurate that is. I don't think it's quite as bad as smoking. I don't think anything's as bad as smoking. But the more we learn about sitting, the more we learn it's really terrible for you. And they're saying now that if you sit all day, the damage that that does to your health can't really be undone even by regular exercise. 
my wife is a uh, journalist and when she writes for Newsday and when she was writing for Newsday and having to go in, she would, they had standing desks. So she would always start her day standing, but within about an hour of doing work standing, her back would start to her. And so she would then sit. So she would stand for an hour and then sit. Well, there is now legislation in New York. I'm curious what you think of it. And I'm curious if this is going to catch on around the country. Where if you are working, no matter what your job is, private sector or public sector, the state legislators have introduced legislation to allow some foot-weary working New Yorkers to sit on the job. Assemblywoman Karinas Reyes of the Bronx is a registered nurse who obviously is experienced in accumulating steps, and um, she's sponsoring this bill with State Senator Rachel May. And they point out that you have all these people, supermarket cashiers, bodega clerks, those with jobs requiring lots of screen times, these are examples of people who are on their feet all day, prowling security guards. And this bill would mandate that these people get some time to sit down from time to time. They say research shows almost the exact opposite of what I just told you. They say uh, that research shows prolonged periods of standing can cause health problems, big and small, from tired feet to cardiovascular problems. So isn't that interesting? Um, The bill is called, and this is where I really just love clever acronyms. The bill is called Standing is Tiring Act. Okay. You know, that's that's the acronym for the Standing is Tiring Act. SIT. So that's what the bill is called, the SIT Act. So the SIT Act is in New York. Everybody is talking about it. And it presents, according to the memo, a reasonable step in this direction, requiring employers to provide employees who can sit with the ability to do so and preventing employers from constructing workplaces to force prolonged standing unnecessarily. So if you're a cashier... If you're a bodega worker, if you're um, a security guard, you have to provide a chair. Well, who else had this idea? That's right. George Costanza. George Costanza was engaged to Susan, and Susan's family had this business, and George was really frustrated with the fact that the security guard in this business had to stand all day. And he was not going to stand for that. Tired? <laughs> How come uh, no chair? What? I, I couldn't help but notice that uh, you don't have a chair. I don't need a chair. No, I, I didn't mean to imply that you did. You're obviously a very uh, well-proportioned individual. <laughs> what, what I was just wondering is, um, have they ever offered you a chair? No. Would you like a chair? I suppose if they gave me one, I'd sit down. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You would, wouldn't you? Obviously, I'd rather sit than stand, if that's what you're asking. That's exactly my point. Well, who wouldn't? As I tell you, frankly, 
I would like to walk in here one day and find you sitting down. <laughs> that would give me a lot of pleasure. Now, obviously, those of you that are Seinfeld fans know what happened there. But what this bill would do is it would empower the Department of Labor to determine rules on who would get to sit during work and whose duties allow employers to require them to stand. So uh, it's uh, it's getting a lot of momentum, and the legislature's not in session now, so they won't vote on it until January at the earliest. But um, the proponents of this bill are trying to generate support for it all over the state, and uh, a lot of people are invoking that Seinfeld scene. Um, Assemblywoman Reyes said, told the New York Post, we're trying to make sure that people can actually work and work for a long time. The worst thing in life is having a job that you know kills you in a few years and cuts you out on disability. I guess, look, you, you have the sitting people that say sitting kills you. You have the standing people that say standing kills you. I guess the solution is if you're looking for a healthy lifestyle, Maybe moderation, right? Maybe don't sit all day. Maybe don't stand all day. Is that the is that the most commonsensical uh, approach that you've ever heard to the approach? I'm curious what you think of this. Whether you live in New York or any other state in the union, should you be permitted if you're on a, if you have a job that requires you to stand all day, should you be permitted to sit? Eight hundred. 848-9222. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Uh, just to close the loop on another aspect of O.B. Murray's visit here the other day. You know, O.B.'s a great guy. And uh, when O.B. came here, he's also a little bit of a showman, as you could tell, for the four hours that he was doing the show with me. So when he came here the other day, he – and he's also very generous, right? He brought donuts for everybody, okay? Brought espresso – for us, which I enjoyed. Helped keep me awake. He uh, brought uh, some Diet Coke, which I don't really drink. I don't really drink soda at all, but once in a while is a nice treat. can be kind of refreshing. So I didn't drink it during the show because I didn't want to be burping like crazy. So I put it in the refrigerator, saved it for tomorrow. Great. And um, as sort of a, a prop, he brought cigars, scotch, bottle of Johnny Walker Black, and a six-pack of Corona beer. Now, the last thing I need to be doing is consuming a drop of alcohol while I'm on the on the air because, yeah, I've got people like Curtis already trying to propagate the myth that I'm drunk all the time. The last thing I'm going to do is uh, have a drop of alcohol while I'm on the air. Plus, um, uh, you know, I say so many foolish things on a regular basis the last thing I need to do is get in trouble for saying something dumb and then have management or, uh, or, you know, the HR people say, oh, well, were you drinking on the air? And then for me to use that defense that every alcoholic used, oh, yeah, but it was just one. Right. So that's the last thing I need. So I, I don't want to look at that alcohol. I don't want to touch that alcohol. And, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. So I did not have, uh, and I think Matt Blaze will attest to this, did not touch a drop of that alcohol. You did not. Right. The, so, the glass was empty. Right. So we go through the whole four hours of the show. And uh, the show goes well, at least according to me. And Obi still has this six-pack of Corona beer. And, <laughs> and he holds it up. Well, what he did was, he, he said to me, he said, hey, I have this six-pack. I don't want it. 
you guys can have it. And it was right here outside the studio right. where he left it on the desk. So I said, I, I don't want it. I said, I, I hardly drink anymore. I don't want it. I had beer in my house. Ken said he didn't want it. So I said to Alex, I said, Alex, oh, we left the six-pack of beer if you want it. And I was like, oh, yeah. No hesitation. Absolutely. No hesitation. I'm right. taking that. Okay. Well, I would. Do I the, said, okay. Sure. I would do the same thing. Take it, right. guys. Come on, free uh, so beer. No, exactly. No problem. And Corona's a good beer. It's not like we're talking Bud One Light. One of my or favorites, Co- Coors in fact. Light or something. Corona bottles, by the way. Yeah. No. No. Yeah. They were nice looking bottles. One of my favorite beers. And this is the the time, like when it's kind of hot out and it's kind of muggy. Where like a, a nice Corona in a glass bottle really hits the spot, with a especially hint of lime. if it's cold. Right. Well, he didn't have lime. Either, I know. Absolutely. So, Which so, I, got uh, so I don't blame Alex for uh, no, taking not, this not uh, Corona beer. And then, so that was Tuesday morning. I come in, come in here yesterday after the show. Uh, we're leaving, and Alex, you tell me that you left this entire six pack of Corona beer. In your e-hail vehicle. Yeah. I <laughs> I don't know why. I yeah, I was tired. It's like six in the morning. I've uh I've How always feel like is I'm that? it is pretty stupid. No, I, I, I'm the first to tell you that it was probably one of the dumbest things I could ever do. I, I mean, okay, let's not get carried away. It's not one but, of the dumbest things you could ever do. But it's such I got so angry with this because it's such a sin to waste beer. Like that well, to waste a little irrationally angry though. No, I don't think it was irrational. Now this beer um, is it's horrible, gone. Horrible, it's horrible, not going to horrible. waste though. Well, how do you know? You know, you think the next guy that took your EL vehicle, another idiot moron, drank <laughs> the beer that you left behind? Yeah, either that or the or the Lyft driver saw it and took it home with him. It's a pretty good tip if you ask me. Mm, I, uh, I I had a major problem. I don't know. Look. I realize fatigue causes a lot of problems. Certainly has been the case with me, and I've seen this time and time again. I don't know how you can leave a six pack of of Corona. I'm I'm behind. fairly forgetful with a lot of <laughs> with a lot of things. Um, I, one of the things I'm most known for leaving behind places is umbrellas. Do you I always well, that leave I understand behind. that I understand. Yeah, but do you take a uh, an e-hail vehicle home every day? I must get, does that get to be pretty expensive? I would think it does, or because it's yeah, I mean, early in the morning, it doesn't. It's it's a little less expensive at this time wow. of the morning. All right, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, that was. And I wouldn't. I mean, frankly, I mean, wouldn't want to take the subway at this time of the morning. Yeah, you know, well, that was disappointing. I must say, yeah. I must say, I'm disappointed in myself too. Yeah, I, I wasted some free beer. Yeah, lose. Yeah, yeah. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I am curious as to your opinion on this sitting bill. Should it be mandated by law that workers get to sit down? Simple as that. 800-848-9222. You don't, why? If you have a job where you got to stand, you got to stand. And I DJed a long time, four hours at a clip. I did, I don't know, 800 some odd parties in my DJ career. And if there was a chair anywhere near me, they'd leave me a chair. Sometimes I used to have to use a table to put my equipment on. I took that chair right out of there. And if I ever go anywhere, any party, and I see a DJ sitting down, it's just disgusting to me. Uh, you know, you're, you're sitting there on your high horse, um, literally sitting there. I have no choice. Yeah. I have to sit here. 
I can't st- look if I stand up. Look what happens. Now you can't even hear me. That that's true. That's why I, I have to move the mic. Right. So there's no. If I could stand, I would. I would uh, stand. Kenneth, where are you on this? I'm more of a fan of st- uh, standing as well, but like again, you, how am I going to answer the phone standing and then right. have to type it right. in and all right. that? That's what I'm yeah. saying. Depends on the job. All right, but but what about uh, just to play devil's advocate here? A security guard, a bodega worker, a uh, bank teller, a grocery store clerk—they're sitting there. Five, no, they're standing there five, six, seven hours, and they don't get a break, and they're tired. All of them, but the security guard should be able to sit down. Well, security guard's got to stand and be okay, at alert. But, but this bill would empower the Department of Labor. To make the kind of decision that you just made, right? That they, they would say, "All right, well, we're going to give this group, that group, mandate a chair for them. Security guard, no, but this group, that group, and this one, they get a chair. I mean, so why shouldn't the Department of Labor get to mandate chairs for these people? I don't think they should be able to mandate anyone. The employer should be able, to, and if you don't like it, don't work there. Mm. If they give you a chair, and like I said, I agree, a bank teller." If there's a, I don't know a job where, where there's no chair for a bank teller. There's got to be a chair somewhere. Well, okay, but you know, you know what I mean. And I understand like grocery clerks, they're they're checking out items. Um, they're st- you know, they're standing, they're leaning. But I think in certain like as, as a security guard, you got to be alert. Mm. You know, uh, any kind of job where you need to be alert, you have to stand. Like you said, you you you're. Your senses are, are more awake when you're standing. Right, right. Everything's pumping more when you're standing. So for those jobs, you, you have to stand. Other jobs, yeah, you probably can get a chair. But for, the, for anybody you have to mandate that is, is just absurd. So I guess you're saying it's, it's not the role of government. To exactly. It's a little okay. overreach. All right. Very, very interesting. All right. Uh, so you have uh, posted in the Facebook group your um, image of Curtis Lewa. Yes. And, you know, there's another AI site. I don't like it as much, but there's no credits, so you can do as many creations as you want. It's called crayon.com, C-R-A-I-Y-O-N.com. So what it does is you type in the text prompt, and then it gives you basically nine images to choose from. So what I did this morning is something similar. It's funny that we both thought of Curtis. I typed in, Curtis Lee were getting shot by Tony Soprano. Okay? And it's interesting, most of the images kind of just produce a distorted face of Curtis and Tony Soprano. But uh, there's one that's kind of cool. I'm going to post that in the Facebook group as well. If you want to see what it came up with, you can join the Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. But the one I'm most proud of is this Groucho Marx robot. Did you see the Groucho Marx robot? I got a look. Oh, yeah. Take a look. It's cool. It's, it's even got the duck from You Bet Your Life. It's really neat. I think it's really neat. So just uh, go on Facebook if you want to see it. Uh, just search Morano Radio fans and haters. You can see the uh, the Curtis Lee AI creation that Matt Blaze made. You can see the Groucho Marx robot, and you can see the Curtis Lee getting shot by Tony Soprano, which doesn't look like that. It looks like some face distortion. Uh, Ed, the milkman, is in New Jersey. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. Um, I think this is all nonsense. The government wants to mandate everything that you do. What are they going to, you know, and, uh, they're right. You're right. A security guard should be standing. How many places I deliver milk to, I have to wake the security guard up to get in the building because he's sitting in a chair sleeping. So 
Well, yeah, I mean, look, I've worked I've worked odd hours pretty much my whole life. And I can tell you that's the case in a lot of the buildings that I've walked into, not the one that I'm working in now. But uh, most of the previous buildings that I've walked into, when I come in three, four o'clock in the morning, that security guard, not an unusual thing to see that person uh, asleep. So uh, that's a fair point. But what about what about uh, some of the other professions, nurse, Uh, uh, bank teller or these other these other jobs? where there's an opportunity that these the, these people could sit if the employer gave them an opportunity to do so. Um, the bank branch that I use, they have, the tellers have the option. They all have a chair or they could stand, right. whatever they but, want to do. But should, should the employer be required to offer the employee the option? No, what's he got to do next? Offer him a health bar because some nitwit politician thinks that everybody should need a health bar every day. I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. How many laws and rules are we going to have? I can't. I, it Ed, is it end. It yeah, is it end. I can't. I can't disagree with you, Ed. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to disagree, I think it was Churchill that said, "Why stand when you can sit?" Right. That's why he was an advocate of taking baths rather than showers. I believe. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Getting great response to this uh, Groucho Marx. Yeah, robot. Your, your Groucho Marx robot reminds me of a tricked out Wall E. Uh, that's it. Does look like that a little yeah. bit, but it's cool. Do you see, I mean, I don't oh, know yeah, how much you know awesome. about Groucho, but you know, it's got the duck and everything. Right. It's it's kind of cool, and the glasses, the the eyes, kind of look like Groucho's glasses. It's it's fun. I I'm not going to post this yet. I'm going to post it tomorrow, so you could like my Facebook page and you'll see it. I did an image of, and I'm not going to tell you the style that I did it, but I did Groucho Marx and Karl Marx on Mount Rushmore, and it's really cool. It came really cool. I'm gonna, I'll just like the Facebook page. I'll show you that tomorrow. And uh, again, the um, the Shatner one that we put is on uh, Instagram at Morano Vision. That's M O R A N O Vision. Brian Kilmeade coming up in about ten minutes. Um, Brian doesn't sit still for a second. So I guarantee you he's opposed to this. He was just in uh, in Albany. I'm looking forward to hearing how that trip went. And I want to get his take on this proposal by Lindsey Graham for a national abortion ban. I have to tell you, I think this is potentially a disaster for the Republicans. Uh, we'll see what Brian thinks. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. Hey, Frank. Thank you for answering, especially so quickly. I have a story about security guards. I worked in a hotel in New York City for three years and I worked with uh, one one good company they lasted about three months and they got fired because hmm. I think they charged too much and they brought this other company in and I it, it was one of those 100% guarantee hotels. If the customer is at all upset about anything they get their whole room paid for so these security guards I had one who worked in the back in other words he comes in, he disappears in the back in a breakfast area he has a whole table loaded with paperwork. And I asked him what he was doing. He said, that's his day job. Oh, okay. boy. Then another one uh, was working one night, and a, and a manager came in from an, another hotel. And he was sitting at the one available computer for guests in the lobby. And he did it remarkably well. He had himself, it looked like a cowboy movie where he was propped upon a totally asleep. So this woman, who I didn't know was a manager, said to me, sir, who is that man? And I said, honestly, that's my security guard. And she chuckled. 
And she said, oh. And uh, when, when we left the conversation, I said, could I please go work for you in, where you are? Because you seem to know how to manage. And then that same guard, another night, I, I woke him up. I woke him up in the lobby. He stood up. Now, Frank, you're how old? Well, I'm 78. You're younger than me. Slightly. He stood up, and I thought he was. I thought he represented the Korean Army. He just had this wonderful goose step that you see in those movies. <laughs> and he started to babble at me with some very, very bad insults. So I politely asked him to please uh, talk to me nice and quiet and have the audacity to say it again. He didn't. Eventually, one of those security guards broke my neck at the job. Whoa! How they do that? Oh, I got assaulted. I got. I had the audacity one night. He came in. It was a multitask type of job. He, he was the security guard. And he had to deliver papers to the room, and I had to. You know, I was there alone with him at night, and um, uh, to do the job properly, you know. Um, you know, you, it, you know, it was a cheap hotel, too. In other words, they're supposed to give newspapers to every room, but instead they, they shortcut it. So I would ask him at night, count the newspapers so I can prioritize who get the, gets the papers. That night he refused to do it. He got in my face. Do you know who Charles Oakley is? Sure. Basketball player, sure. Well, I, he was in the front of the desk to the right. Then he came to the front of the desk. Then he came behind the desk like Char, Charles Oakley. And, and, you know, try to hit me with a chest bump. So I politely said to him, I was 66 years old at the time and I needed to keep my job. I didn't do what I wanted to do, but I said to him, kid, just do your job. And I walked away and I went to my computer to try to get things done. Fifteen minutes later, he came out. He told me politely he was a 50-year-old man and sucker punched me. I had I had punch marks above my eye for two weeks in the hospital. Well, you know, again, Jim, this is an interesting story, but I'm not sure it's directly related to the sitting legislation. Oh, what? Oh, oh, oh I'm sorry. I apologize, Frank. I, do, I thought you were talking about them just not doing their Oh, they, they, you know, that's all they want to do is sit. That's all they want to do is sit. They're, they're not security guards. All right. Well, thank you, you Jim. Know. I appreciate it. All right. Um, we got kind of got off the beaten path there. We got to uh, make sure uh, Jim gets an invite to the uh, Chris and the Catskills, Alex Barnard, uh, John Brooklyn meetings that they've been holding regularly. 800-848-9222. You know what we're going to do now? We're going to try and give away $1,000. Be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, and we will give you, uh, if you're the seventh caller, an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that... You will be $1,000 richer. And then the great Brian Kilmeade, who uh, is the smartest and hardest working guy in journalism these days. Well, at least the hardest working. Maybe not the smartest. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. You broke my heart and you made me cry. You said that I couldn't dance. And now I'm back to let you know that I can really make romance. You do what you gotta do. You do everything you can. You do what you wanna do. Hey, but I love you, Suzanne. 
On the other side of midnight, uh, we're going to talk with uh, Brian Kilmeade in just a moment. Uh, Brian Kilmeade, who you can see as the anchor on Fox and Friends each and every morning, and uh, also here on his nationally syndicated radio show each and uh, every day for a couple hours. Um, meantime, though, it is time for us to give somebody an opportunity to win some money. It's time for... Side of Midnight presents It's the Thousand Dollar Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Clearly, the royalty on that song being paid directly to Matt Blaze, preferring the extended version. Let's say hello to Glenn in Sound Beach. Hello, Glenn. Good morning. Glenn, where's Sound Beach? Uh, by Port Jeff. Oh, okay, great. You see, you learn something new every day. All right, you familiar with the game, Glenn? I am. Okay. But let me ask you a question first. Go, go ahead, yeah. Okay, so you know how Spock does long, uh, live long and prosper in Star Trek? Yeah, didn't we do this the other day? But this is something else. Okay, so yes. He does a hand signal. He does a hand signal mm-hmm. with the splitting of the finger. Where does he get that from? Yeah, from Leonard Nimoy. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's something that a uh, a Jewish rabbi does. Um, it's a uh, it's basically it, it's a V. It's a V shape that he got from uh, a Jewish uh, a Jewish rabbi. Right. Well, well it's a priest, a Cohen. Jew, a Cohen. Yes, that's right. And yeah, it, there's right. um, it's a great documentary um about Nimoy's life that his son made, where they get into that a little bit. Uh, Nimoy also writes about that in his book, I Am Spock. All right, Glenn, are you ready to play? I am. Okay. Name a board game. Monopoly. How many dwarves did Snow White hang out with? Seven. Who painted the Mona Lisa and the Last Supper? Michelangelo. I'm sorry, uh, Glenn. It was Leonardo uh, da Vinci. Glenn. Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, okay. All right. I'm going to put you on hold. Uh, give Kenneth your information, and uh, we will give you a consolation prize. Uh, I mean, look, do you really even need to know who da Vinci is anymore? In the era of AI art, where I'm producing these great AI images of a robot Groucho Marx. I mean, do you really need to know uh, Da Vinci? Come on. We're in an AI era. I just, oh, you know what? I just produced, uh, I just did an AI uh, piece of art of Brian Kilmeade as an android. I must say, it looks pretty good. And uh, Brian Kilmeade, who you can hear every day from uh, 10 a.m. until noon on WABC and see every day on Fox News, uh, also New York Times bestselling author. You'll be proud to know, Brian, the Brian Kilmeade android that I've created in this AI art has two American flags on him. Great. I mean, is this for real? Yeah. Are you no, no, actually no. doing gonna, this? I'm going to text this to you. Uh, you're going to love this. I, well, maybe you won't, but you have green eyes for some reason. 
It's b- right. b- Brian Kilmeade as an android. It's a pretty good image, I must say. I, I think it's uh, – I didn't know there was demand. <laughs> Are you satisfying callers or <laughs> – is this a passion? Is this a hobby? Well, it, no, it, it, it has become a, a, a hobby. Hey, um, it, let me ask you a serious question here. Is it too early for me to try to get um, New York Giants Super Bowl tickets? Uh, no, uh, not for 2022, though. <laughs> okay. uh, I just don't see it. But I, I'm so encouraged. A game they weren't supposed to win, a game that they look like the same old Giants in the first two quarters. Their coaches make some adjustments. Uh, the team plays with confidence. And Saquon took the, you know, it was almost remind me of 1990s or 80s football, where a running back can make a difference, a huge difference. And if this guy could stay healthy, uh, everybody adjusts. And they, then he choke up to stop the run, they move up to stop the run. And all of a sudden, if, if Daniel Jones can be coachable, uh, next thing you know, he's able to complete some passes. It, it keeps defenses honest. So there's a few things that really could happen uh, after what we saw the other day. I'm not sure that we would have been so happy if they missed that two-point conversion, though. Oh, no. That, I'm not I, sure that that might be a thing. What's with the Giants? They finally get to the point where they can win in overtime. Why would they take that risk? So uh, I was shocked by the move. Yeah. The Jets, not as much reason to look optimistic at this point, though. Right. Uh, two key offensive linemen hurt. A coach that's already doing his best Joe Judge imitation. <laughs> I'm taking receipts on everybody that doesn't uh, that doesn't believe in us. Okay. You understand, before you got here, when you were in San Francisco, um, Coach, you this team has been struggling for 20 years. They've had two years to get to the conference championships, and then they get rid of the coach and the and Sanchez implodes since that time. They've been wallowing. So you can't blame the fan base. I'm surprised they're still in the big picture. In any other city, they wouldn't be showing up. Mm. No, it's uh, it's certainly true. Hey, uh, one of the big issues that everybody's talking about this week is the economy. People were already talking about it, given what's happened with the stock market and the numbers related to inflation. Now, with this looming rail strike, which could cost, they estimate, $2 billion a day in economic losses. I have to think this is uh, not exactly good news if you're President Biden or if you're somebody that has to participate in the American economy these days. Right. Uh, let's see if they could avoid this. You know, he was out yesterday. Uh, he wanted to try an electric car. So that's one way to handle this, uh, an emergency. Or you could fly to Delaware and vote and then stop by your house. <laughs> so that's those are two things that shows that he's right on top of things. If anybody should know about trains, it's him. All he talks about is getting on trains. It's all he ever did. I, I went home. I got on a train. So what is he waiting for? I mean, another thing, that's just terrible staffing. The same people that gave you that celebratory press conference while the market tanked, uh, the same people that gave you that blood-red speech at Independence Hall, are the ones that were asleep literally at the switch when this train strike's about to happen, except for the Northeast Corridor. I mean, what's the reason with the exemption? We have to let lawmakers be able to travel? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, the president, as you know, has the ability to end any strike that's threatening the economy. President Reagan obviously did so very famously with the air traffic controllers. But given the fact that Biden is so dependent on organized labor for political support, uh, I don't see him taking any sort of drastic steps like that. Do you? You know, it's very interesting. I, I know you got the unions you're fighting against, but the Republicans did give him an out. They they gave him a program to get out. They gave him an outline. Right, to, Bernie to Sanders blocked it. it. Yeah. It's crazy. 
So where's the leadership? I mean, people also point to, well, you know, he's gotten bipartisan uh, things done. He's gotten that chips deal. He's gotten infrastructure. He's got uh, a deal of uh, on gun legislation. None of it was him. All of it was done at the Senate level. So like, it's not that like he's taking the lead here. He, you know, he's not exactly hands-on, you know, Harry Truman. So I, I mean, I, I imagine they're going to get through this. I imagine this is the brinksmanship that comes with a lot of strikes that we see in sports all the time. But uh, let's see, because the last thing we need uh, for you know, you know, our transportation secretary, this might be a good opportunity for him to do something, or is he on leave again? Well, uh, it's uh, a wish in the best, and hopefully I don't think anybody uh, wants, a, wants a strike to take place. So hopefully uh, cooler heads will prevail. Let me ask you about what's happening uh, with respect to Senator Lindsey Graham and this proposal on abortion. He was on Fox News this week talking about his proposal for uh, sort of a modified national abortion ban. This is what he said. I think we should have a law at the federal level. That would say after 15 weeks, no abortion on demand, except in cases of rape, incest, to save the life of the mother. And that should be where America's at. And, uh, you know, it was not long ago that Lindsey Graham was saying this is something that should be left up to the states. I have to think that irrespective of how people feel about abortion, this is pretty good news for Democratic congressional candidates. I mean, how do you see it? Uh, a couple of things. You know, the, the last week we were, and maybe not you and I, but we were talking about, you know, what is the Republican message going to be two weeks ago when it comes to abortion? You know, they, they caught the car, the, the, you know. Uh, so, okay, they, this is what they wanted to do for 30 years. So what's the goal? Well, well, the American people aren't all pro-life. Only about 35 percent are. So what do you do? You know, well, the, 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 most Republicans are pro-life. So, but how do you get elected and be pro-life? And not alienate women, especially uh, the messaging about it when they talk about abortion rights. And people listening to us right now and saying, what about the baby? I get it. Let's not debate abortion. Let's debate the tactics on abortion. Mm -hmm. So what Lizzie Graham said is this. You know, what John Roberts wants to do, wanted to do, and no one's denied this, is says, guys, let's not uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. Let's come out with a 15-week compromise. And that's where Europe is. That's where most people are. So Lindsey Graham decides to take the bull by the horns. Let's do the Robert Compromise and let the states decide. But maybe we just put 15 weeks in there to alleviate a lot of these, um, a lot of the problems the Republicans are having electorally, especially because they were rattled to the core when they lost that Kansas seat and that Kansas vote on zero weeks abortion. But his timing was off because of uh, the economy. The Republicans had to uh, get that message out that they could do a better job in the economy. Instead, Lindsey Graham allowed uh, the political world to focus on him, not on the folly of the president having a celebratory press conference uh, on the White House lawn the day in which the economy shows indications that it's been inflicting nothing but pain on the people, and James Taylor sang us through it. <laughs> so that timing was terrible, and I'm not sure that he has even the he even got the rest of the Republicans on the same page as this. Yeah. And so politically, I think you would agree this is a losing issue uh, the way Graham is positing it. Frank, but the thing is, everybody's got to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So whether Mm -hmm. it's Bullduck in New Hampshire. But but, but isn't isn't the easy answer, if you're a Republican congressional or Senate candidate, that we we think this should be decided at the state level? Isn't that the easy answer? But what if you are in the state level? You right. You well, that's a governor. different ballgame, yeah. right? And right. then yeah, and then you Marco Rubio, and you're saying, you know, I'm I'm vehemently pro-life, but that's not what Florida is. 
So I'm going to go with the legislature. So that that's pretty much what they were saying. But if you're running for governor, what are you going to push your legislature to do? Whether you're Mastriano or or Kari uh, uh, Lake. So where are you going to be on that? So they're going to be forced to weigh in on that. I think senators are too. Lindsey Graham said, let me take the lead on this. I'm not too sure that was a good move. Well, just like you're mm-hmm. indicating, I'm not too sure that's uh, that this is the right tactic. So we saw um, President Biden giving his speech on democracy last week and uh, warning about people that don't accept election results and uh, decrying uh, those sort of folks. And it was interesting, the notable omission from that speech on democracy was the fact that the Democrats, both on a national level and on a bunch of local levels, are funding election deniers and people that insist the 2020 election wasn't legitimately decided. It seems to me that uh, President Biden, by omitting the Democrats' role in promoting these election deniers, it was a blatantly partisan address and had very little to do with democracy. I mean, how did you see it? Well, I mean, it's unbelievable that Biden doesn't ever never wants to lead. I mean, at one point, could he just say, listen, I'm not for these super PACs funding these what I view as extreme Republican candidates. I think that's counter to what Democrats want to do. And it's counter to my message that we should fear Republican, fear uh, ultra-MAGA Republicans. Meanwhile, just keep in mind, think about all the events that Donald Trump has had. In big and small venues, the one thing is pretty consistent, the crowds have been huge, and they've, he's always give them a, uh, a great experience, it seems. Everyone leaves. No one says, I wish it was longer or shorter. But there's been no violence. The one time there was violence afterwards, that's what Joe Biden wants to outline. I think it's totally disingenuous. But if he is going to say, no, I mean every word of it, you can't mean every word of it and not call out your own party for putting oh, $30, 40000000 million, maybe even more, into what they view as extreme candidates like Bulldog, like Cox uh, and Mastriano. They view it. I'm not saying they can't win, but that's how they're viewed. It's a, and they didn't win in a lot. They wasted a lot of their money in others. But they're spinning their wheels. And think about this. If you're a Democrat and say, you know, I want to keep the House. I, I would love to keep the Senate. And I want to support Joe Biden, although I've never heard that in a sentence. I, I'm giving my money towards trying to elect Republicans. Would you be happy about that? If there was a fund, go elect extreme Republicans. Right. How much money would be in there? Yeah, not, not a lot. Uh, not a lot. Hey, um, more important, how is the uh, dog doing? We, um, we're dealing with a situation where it's like breaking a wild horse. I mean, this, this dog, I have two, two other great Pyrenees. One had knee problems and one's deaf. So they were the most mellow puppies. I thought that's the way great Pyrenees were. So we thought, well, you know, they're getting a little old. They're about seven. Would it be good for them to get their great behavior and inflict it on a puppy while uh, the kids were home over the summer? And this puppy, I ended up getting... Um, Bruce Jenner when he was a man. I mean, that's how athletic this dog is. You cannot catch it. If he, if she is loose, you will not catch her. If it was Rocky too, and he says, chase the chicken, you have speed, the chicken would have won. So I, I cannot believe this dog's energy and what it's been able to do totally caught us by surprise. Great spirit, great attitude, impossible to keep up with. So I'm literally, as soon as I walk in the house, it's not even read this, catch up on this, uh, put on this. You know, it is put in the AirPods, run this dog to death. 
So I'm really walking him in and out of box, her in and out of box, just to break her into a normal energy base. Hopefully, we start uh, we're getting this dog used to the fact that it's got to live with people. <laughs> well, that's terrific. Um, well, you were up in Albany uh, for the uh, the Kilmead Takes America by Storm tour. Uh, yes, I think that's a much better name. Uh, then uh, America Great from the start, uh, Frank. I'm going to steal that. Good. It's all but good. it was fun. I mean, just to be up there in the Capitol, and then I was able to broadcast from our great affiliate up there right at the train station in Albany. And you see all the politicians coming through, and you see the people there. Uh, just a great setup. I mean, there's uh, there's a sense, and I was talking to a lot of political insiders, that Lee Zeldin has got a legitimate shot. And I will say, if that lawn sign thing is means anything, his signs are everywhere. I went from Oneonta to Albany, um, uh, to another college I wanted to came nameless on purpose. I was in three different colleges watching three different soccer games over the weekend. And so wherever small town I went to, Zeldin signs are everywhere. Uh, people at home listening saying, well, this is mostly Democratic City. Yeah, in New York City. But when it comes up, say, people really think that Zeldin's got a shot. Two political insiders told me they guarantee it. And to keep you know, keep an eye on that New York Post story that came out last week, Hochul blatantly selling her soul to these uh, interest groups. That broke first in Albany. Two days later, it was on the New York Post. So, I mean, she is really leaving herself open. I can't see her growing in numbers. Lee Zeldin has got a lot of energy. I don't know about you, Frank, but I walk into Penn Station two or three times a week. And... Uh, I would say nine out of ten over the last month, I've had people at the top of the escalator saying, vote Lee Zeldin. I mean, that's what you got to do. He needs well, three right. out I of mean, ten. Those... He needs three out of ten to say, vote for him. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, uh, the folks that are coming in from Long Island, uh, from Westchester, yeah. from Orange, uh, there, uh, I think Zeldin is going to win big. The question is, is he going to get the 30 to 35 percent of the vote necessary in New York City in order to, um, you know, in order to uh, make up for what uh, what Hochul's going to do here? We'll see. It'll be interesting. Uh, what's coming up on TV? What's coming up on radio today? Uh, well, I'm I'm not sure I'm doing trains or not, uh, okay. but uh, I am definitely going to uh, I am definitely going to be talking about 2022. Um, I'm going to be uh, going over um, uh, going over really what we uh, witnessed last uh, yesterday. You talk about election deniers and the crackdown on the pillow guy. Um, I think uh, we should also look at what Stacey Abrams said on The View yesterday. Basically, the election was stolen. I didn't lose. But uh, I'm not in the governor's mansion, so I know I lost. So she's still denying it. When's that going to happen? I'm going to talk about Ukraine and maybe the assassination attempt on on, on Vladimir Putin yesterday, which is pretty unbelievable. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the the migrating of illegal immigrants. I don't know. Last night you saw that in, uh, now in Martha's Vineyard. Ron DeSantis flew them into Martha's Vineyard yesterday. You know, they're in Chicago. Uh, Eric Adams says we're at the breaking point. They're with about 7,000 illegal immigrants. We're overrunning the homeless shelters here. I'm going to talk about that, but how dare Eric Adams say that? As much as it's against my own interests, how could he say that when they get 7,000 a day in Texas, and this guy says it's an outrage he's given 7,000 in three months? Here, they're getting 7,000 a day. So come on, this is these are like the kids fighting because the parents will not crack down on their kids. The only thing reason this is happening is because Mayorkas is awful, the president is invisible, the vice president is negligent, and that's why these people – and by the way, there's a busload to the vice president's house today in Washington, D.C. of illegal immigrants. 
So this is this is to me is is really heating up. And we'll talk about the the poll, the Fox News poll that says um, uh, the majority of the country, uh, 38% now say the, this administration is competent. That number was at uh, that number was at 52% in September of 2021. Now it's at 38% thinks it's competent. Think about that. They kept saying that Donald the adults are back in the White House. That these are these are lower numbers than Donald Trump ever had, and despite the fact that he only had Frank Morano in his corner, right. uh, that would give him a shot for four years. Um, I have texted you the Brian Kilmeade as an android. You could take a look, and you have my permission to use this wherever you like uh, for your promotional tour yeah. for the Brian Kilmeade Storms America tour, whatever the case may be. Uh, I have tweeted it as well, and I think uh, uh, I think the Kilmeadeaholics out there will get a big kick out of this. I will say this. I just got my roster of guests in as we spoke. Uh, Lee Zeldin, Dr. Oz will be on. Oh, terrific. Okay. So, yeah, MR Keeson to give some perspective. So you you just texted me something? I just texted you the uh, art, the AI artwork wow. of uh, of Brian Kilmeade as an Who android. Did this? You did this? No, a, a computer did it at my text prompt. I, I look a little grim. You do. Well, you're an android in this image. Right. So if people want to see your, uh, it, it. Well, it, thanks to the American flag. And I do look good in, in royal green. <laughs> you too, but indeed. Especially with the Should I put that out there and hey, see what you, people think? You can retweet it and think uh, and ask if it's an effective uh, Android. Go ahead. Give it, a, give it a shot. All right. All right. Um, Brian, it's always a treat to talk with you, my friend. Go get him, Frank. Thank you. 800-848-9222. We'll do 15 seconds of fame. You want to see Brian Kilmeade as an Android. Find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano, Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank moreno uh coming up tomorrow we got a lot of interesting things uh coming up tomorrow um and uh obviously ask frank anything tomorrow in the first hour so so come armed with good questions right that segment is only as good as your questions are uh we'll award prizes for whoever has the most creative questions for tomorrow meantime we will um give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Mike and Lake George. Tomorrow, Frank, always a great show, man. I'm glad you got a national show. Thank I you. started listening to talk radio with Bob Giganti, okay? And you definitely take a page from his book and thoughts and prayers to Bernie. 
had the pleasure of meeting him at Long Beach Boardwalk a few times. Thoughts and prayers for Bernie. I hope he bounces back. Amen. Yep. Frank in New Jersey. Yes, Curtis rocks. You smell socks. <laughs> Jimmy in Brooklyn. Wow. Hey, Frankie. Uh, I just wanted to say the more that you sit, the chances are much more likely that you will develop hemorrhoids in your life. And that's a <laughs> Victor in Manhattan. Uh, as you know, the real surname of the Queen was Windsor. But when Ocasio-Cortez was asked what the Queen's surname was, she responded, Oh, that's an easy one. It's the second. <laughs> Jackson in Queens. You know, Frank, I was resting comfortably in my Confederate uh, House of Secrecy in Richmond, Virginia, and I am disgusted that Donald Trump can't defend himself in a federal court of law against these charges. Uh, Frankie and Glendale. This Saturday, I'm going to meet Joey from Ronkonkoma with my 76 Firebird Formula at the Knights of Columbus annual car show at uh, St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Church on Portion Road in Ronkonkoma. Uh, thank you, Frankie. John, Mike, Joe, William, Eddie, Stephen, we'll get to you tomorrow. Call early. We'll allow more time for this. A lot of fun stuff planned for tomorrow. Uh, until then, Frank Moreno, good day.